Macmillan Audio presents Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual by Jocko Willink. Read for you by the author, Jocko Willink. This book is dedicated to the men of SEAL Team 3, Task Unit Bruiser, who taught me how to lead. Especially Mark Lee, who taught me the value of life. Mikey Monsoor, who taught me the meaning of sacrifice. Ryan Job, who taught me true perseverance. Chris Kyle, who taught me about devotion to duty. And Seth Stone, my brother, who taught me about loyalty and friendship and never let me down. Ever. Introduction The Roots of Learning Leadership When I reported to SEAL Team 1, after completing basic underwater demolition SEAL training, or BUDS for short, there was no leadership course. New SEALs were issued no books or materials of any kind on the subject. We were expected to learn to lead the way SEALs had always learned for our entire existence, through OJT, or on-the-job training. Of course, there are some advantages to OJT. It is helpful to be coached and mentored by a solid leader who trains you as you go through the real challenges of your actual job. In the SEAL teams, that means a leader telling you exactly what to do in various scenarios as you go through them. If your leader happens to be a good leader, is willing to invest in you, and you are smart enough to pay attention, you will eventually learn something about leadership. But there are some major shortfalls to this method of teaching leadership. First of all, not all leaders are good leaders, and the SEAL teams are no exception. When I got to the SEAL teams, it was 1991. There was no war going on. The first Gulf War had just been fought, but the ground war was over in just 72 hours. SEALs only conducted a small number of operations, and they were relatively easy. Almost all other deployments before that, for the better part of 20 years, had been peacetime deployments. SEALs' primary task had been training other countries' militaries. Actually engaging in combat seemed a far-off dream to me and to most of us in the military. The reality was, the SEAL teams and the rest of the U.S. military had been in a peacetime mode since the end of the Vietnam War. This meant leaders weren't really tested. A great leader in the SEAL teams got pretty much the same assignments and advanced just as quickly as a bad leader. There was no guarantee that the leader in a platoon who was supposed to be mentoring young SEALs was the type of leader who should be emulated. On top of that, not all leaders are looking to mentor their subordinates. Furthermore, even the best leaders can only truly invest their time and knowledge in a handful of their people. Even during peacetime, there is a ton of administrative work to be done, and there's a good chance that leadership, coaching, and mentorship will slide off the schedule. But for the junior SEALs, it was incumbent upon them to pay attention. But there were also plenty of distractions. Sometimes it was difficult for a junior member of the team to understand he would not always be a new guy that one day he would be a leader in the SEAL platoon, and that he needed to learn everything he could 
so he would be ready. I was lucky. I had some truly great leaders who invested in me. They took the time to explain things to me. They talked me through strategies and tactics. Some of the Vietnam SEALs told stories that held important tactical leadership lessons. I listened. Those stories and lessons sank in. Eventually, I was able to put the leadership theories I had learned to the ultimate test in combat. I then codified those lessons and passed them to the young SEALs entering the ranks. I tried to teach them how to lead. The goal of leadership seems simple, to get people to do what they need to do to support the mission and the team. But the practice of leadership is different for everyone. There are nuances to leadership that everyone has to uncover for themselves. Leaders are different. Followers are different. Peers are different. Everyone has their own individual characteristics, personalities, and perspectives. I often tell leaders that what makes leadership so hard is dealing with people, and people are crazy. And the craziest person a leader has to deal with is themselves. That being said, even crazy has a pattern. There are patterns to human behavior. If you can recognize the patterns, you can predict the way things are likely to unfold and influence them. When I retired from the military, I started teaching civilian leaders the same principles of combat leadership. Eventually, I partnered with my former SEAL teammate, Leif Babin, and started a leadership consultancy called Echelon Front. The principles from the battlefield applied to any leadership situation. We wrote about the tenets we had learned in combat in two books about our experience as combat leaders and how the principles of combat leadership applied to business and life. The books, Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy of Leadership, explain the principles in clear language and showcase the principles in stories from combat and the business world. The feedback from leaders around the world has been incredibly powerful as they apply the principles from the books to their worlds. But applying the principles can be more challenging than it might seem. While garnering an understanding of the concepts is fairly simple, sometimes it takes more. A leader must understand the strategies and tactics needed to actually implement these principles, how to pragmatically put the principles to work. He or she must understand the strategic foundations on which the principles are built and the core tenets that comprise those principles. Then, the leader must understand the tactical skills, strategic maneuvers, and communication techniques used to employ the principles of leadership. That is what this book is about. Like other books I've written, the experiences I describe are based on my memory, which isn't perfect. The quotes are not verbatim, but approximations meant to convey the ideas that were spoken. Some details have been altered to protect the identities of the people involved or sensitive information. This book does not need to be read only sequentially from cover to cover. It is written and organized to be used as a reference so that any leader can quickly understand and implement the strategies and tactics relevant to the situation he or she is facing. Leadership strategy and tactics is meant as a field companion to help leaders do what they are supposed to do. Lead. Who am I to try and teach others how to lead? Where did I learn leadership? Much of my education was luck. 
I say luck because there were a few fortunate coincidences that gave me the right frame of mind, the right teachers, and the right opportunities to learn. One of the ways I was lucky and that made me focus on leadership was the fact that I wasn't really that naturally talented at anything in particular. As a little kid, I wasn't the fastest or strongest or smartest. I was never great at shooting a basketball, kicking a soccer ball, or throwing a baseball. I didn't win any races or have a shelf of trophies and ribbons from sports. My report card was never exceptional either. I might have done well in a class if I was interested, but I usually wasn't, and my grades reflected that. I was average across the board. Still, at the core of my personality, I wanted to do well. I wanted to leave an impression on people. I wanted to leave a mark. But my athletic and cognitive skills didn't always allow it. So even from a young age, I needed to get others with more talent and more skill to do what I needed them to do. I needed to lead. Of course, I didn't think of it as leadership. I just thought I was making things happen and contributing by getting people to work together, to support one another, as we moved towards a common mission. Maybe that mission was building a fort in the woods or planning a mock military assault with squirt guns on another group of friends. Whatever the task was, I generally found myself giving direction to people who were stronger, faster, or otherwise more capable than I was. That seemed to be where I could help the most and the one area in which I could perform with a higher level of competency. I've also always had a rebellious streak. Maybe it was another way for me to leave a mark. I wouldn't conform to the way other kids acted. I acted differently, listened to hardcore and heavy metal music, and had a hardcore attitude about things. That attitude set me apart from the pack. Once on the outside of the normal kids, I was detached from them, so I observed. Looking in from the outside, I garnered a better understanding of the people I was watching. I saw their emotions, their clicks, and their drama unfold from a detached position. I learned. My rebelliousness reached its pinnacle when I decided to join the Navy. Many of the other kids in my small New England town were smoking pot, drinking, and listening to hippie music. After high school, many were heading away to college or going into a trade. Joining the military was one of the most radical things a kid from my town could do. And I took it one step further. I tried for the SEAL teams. In the late 80s and early 90s, no one knew very much about the SEAL teams. My Navy recruiter had one bad copy of the SEAL recruiting video entitled, Be Someone Special. While completely cheesy by today's standards, at the time it provided me with a window into the SEAL teams. Machine guns, snipers, explosives, and high-speed operations. It was like a dream come true, so I enlisted. When I told my father I was joining the Navy, he told me, you are going to hate it. Why, I asked him. Because you don't like authority, and you don't like people telling you what to do. But Dad, I responded confidently, this is the SEAL teams. It is a team. We don't have to take orders. We work together. What a naive kid I was. Actually, I was just plain stupid. I thought the SEAL teams were just groups of guys who worked together, 
completely flat organizations where no one was really in charge. Not even close. I also had heard that the SEAL teams had a 50% casualty rate and that almost no one made it to a 20-year retirement because most SEALs were wounded or killed. Mind you, this was 1989. But other than the invasion of Panama, where combat operations lasted only about a month and a half, we weren't at war. Looking back, I'm sure this idea of a 50% casualty rate was rooted in the fact that the predecessors to the SEAL teams, the Naval Combat Demolition Units, or NCDUs, had suffered a 50% casualty rate during the D-Day invasion of Normandy Beach. I didn't know that at the time. I thought all SEALs had a 50% casualty rate, and I believed it. And it made me even more eager to be part of the SEAL teams. Like I said, I was dumb. Tough, but dumb. But joining the Navy was still the best thing I could have done. It gave me a blank slate and clear direction. No one in the Navy cared that I didn't have the best grades in high school. It didn't matter that I wasn't the best athlete. No one was concerned where I was from, what my parents did, or about anything else in my history. They shaved my head, gave me a uniform, and told me what I needed to do to be successful. Make your bed like this, fold your underwear like that, polish your boondockers until they look like mirrors. If you could follow the rules and do what you were told, you would be put into a leadership position. I did follow the rules, and I did what I was told to do, and it paid off. I was made a squad leader in boot camp. What does that mean? Technically, not much at all, but it meant a lot to me. I was successful, but more important, I had found a home. Buds was the same way for me. I still wasn't great at any particular skill, not the best runner or swimmer, not great at the obstacle course, but I could do what I was told. I could play the game, and I wasn't going to quit. Some people say that everyone thinks about quitting during buds. I never did. Not for a second. The thought never crossed my mind. Hell week, a five-day block of continuous physical training with almost no sleep whatsoever and which causes the highest number of people to quit was actually relaxing for me because during hell week, nothing is timed. During all other facets of buds, students are constantly on the clock. Timed runs, swims, and obstacle course evolutions take place every day. If you miss the time and fail one of them, you are on the bubble. If you fail again, you are out. It was stressful. But during Hell Week, nothing was timed. You just had to keep going. You just had to not quit. For me, that was the easy part. When I got done with Buds, I checked into SEAL Team 1. I was fired up, as all of us were who were checking into that sacred place of war heroes and legends. We were proud we had graduated buds, and we were ready for life as SEALs. There was one problem. We weren't SEALs yet, and we had no reason to be proud, as we soon found out. The Master Chief of the Command, the highest-ranking enlisted SEAL at Team 1, welcomed us aboard. No one here cares that you made it through buds. We all did. It doesn't mean anything here. You have to prove yourselves to earn your trident. So keep your mouth shut, your ears open, don't forget anything, and be on time. Any questions? The trident was the gold insignia worn on the uniform, which indicates you were a SEAL. 
To receive our tridents, we had to go through a six-month probationary period and then go through a written and oral review board with the senior enlisted personnel at the team. We were all nervous about that, and the Master Chief provided no comfort whatsoever. None of us had any questions for the Master Chief. That was a humbling moment. Despite having been through Bud's training, and despite being told that the training was elite and special, we realized very quickly that we weren't. The rest of us new guys and I still had a lot to prove, and somehow I knew I always would. That is one of the underlying themes of the SEAL Team culture. You can never rest on what you have achieved in the past. You always have to improve. In the early 90s, when I got to SEAL Team 1, the basic progression was different from how it is now. Back then, once on board a team, you were eventually assigned to a SEAL platoon. This is where you would actually learn to be a SEAL. Up to that point, the training wasn't tactical. In BUDS, you don't learn very much at all about the actual job of being a SEAL. You learn how to be cold, wet, tired, and miserable, and not to complain about any of it. But you don't learn any of the job skills that make you into a professional operator. Those skills were taught to you once you were in a SEAL platoon. There, you learned through a fire hose. There was so much knowledge you needed, so many skills to develop, so many tactics to understand, you felt you would never know it all. But like the rest of the new guys, I listened and I learned. Every single day. In my first three platoons, I learned a few key concepts that stuck with me for the rest of my career. And they also were the base upon which I built most of the principles I ended up teaching to the rest of the SEAL teams and, eventually, to companies, businesses, and organizations around the globe. These are examples of the lucky moments I referred to earlier. I was in the right place at the right time with the right frame of mind to learn what I did. Then, I was lucky enough to have experiences to overlay what I had learned and slowly, subconsciously, begin to formulate a system of leadership that I was then lucky enough to apply on one of the most challenging battlefields in the world, the Battle of Ramadi in the summer of 2006. When I returned from that deployment, I took over the training for the West Coast SEAL teams, where I formalized, codified, and transcribed what I had learned. But the roots of everything I eventually wrote down originated in a very non-traditional but effective learning environment, the SEAL platoon. Part 1. Leadership Strategies Section 1. Foundations First Platoon. Detach It was in my first platoon that I learned the power of being able to detach myself from the chaos and mayhem going on, take a step back, and see what was actually happening. I was lucky that it happened the way it did. We were training to assault offshore oil platforms. In the Persian Gulf, oil platforms could be taken over by enemy forces for a variety of reasons, and we would need to be able to take them back. SEALs had participated in operations against Iranian-controlled oil rigs in the region in the 1980s, and the thought was that we might have to do it again. So we trained and prepared to execute that very specific mission. We would spend time and do training exercises and mock operations on commercial oil platforms 
in various locations. It was great training, mainly because oil platforms are incredibly complex and dangerous structures. Many parts of an oil platform are highly flammable and under massive pressure, so we had to learn what to be cautious of in the event we ever did a real mission on an oil platform. During a real mission, with live ammunition and explosive charges used to open doors, we would obviously need to make sure we understood the danger involved. But what really makes an oil platform a challenging target is the complexity of the structure itself. It is a maze of stairwells and hallways and rooms and open areas covered with equipment. And unlike any other target SEALs might encounter, it is a true three-dimensional problem because many of the floors are made of heavy metal grating that you can see through. So it is very difficult to conceal your movement. And the enemy threat is high because the enemy can see you from a great distance away. After all, they can see through the floors too. As a new guy, I was doing my best, trying to make the right moves at the right time, listening to the tactical calls being made by the leadership, and trying to support those calls. At this point in our pre-deployment workup cycle, the platoon had already been through a lot together. We had completed a full cycle of land warfare training, done extensive close-quarters combat training, and executed urban training, reconnaissance training, and various air and maritime training. So while I was still a new guy, most of the other new guys and I had certainly begun to understand the tactics we were being taught. As usual for me, my individual skills were nothing special. I was not the best shot, not the fastest at reloading my weapon, and definitely not setting any records on the combat swimmer training dives we conducted. But I did feel pretty good about the tactics we were shown, how they worked, and how they were applied. I paid close attention to my platoon leadership, watched them make their tactical decisions, and tried to understand why they made the choices they made. But I was still a new guy. It certainly wasn't my place to make tactical calls or tell people what to do. Then, during one clearance of the oil rig, something happened that hadn't happened before. As we were moving through the structure, the whole platoon entered an area of the rig and became overwhelmed with what was in front of them. It was a large level of the platform, covered with mechanical gear and equipment, which created numerous hiding areas for enemy personnel and presented a complex tactical problem. The whole platoon stood there, side by side, looking down the sights of our weapons at the potential enemy threats like an old-fashioned skirmish line. I stood there like the rest of the platoon, scanning for targets and trying to identify dangerous high-pressure or flammable areas while I waited for a call to be made directing us on our next move. I waited a little longer, still scanning, thinking someone needed to make a call so we would know what to do next. I waited even longer, still nothing. Out of my peripheral vision, I saw the guys to my left and to my right, all doing the same thing I was, holding their weapons in the ready position, scanning for targets, and waiting for the call. But the call still didn't come. I waited a little longer until finally I had had enough. I elevated my weapon into the high port position, meaning I pointed it in a safe direction toward the sky and away from the threats. Then I took a half step back off the firing line and looked to my left and to my right. It was plain to see. 
every person in the platoon, including the platoon commander, the platoon chief, the assistant platoon commander, and the leading petty officer, was all pointing his weapon toward the threat, scanning for targets. But no one was looking anywhere else. They could only see the field of view down the sights of their weapons. No one had any situational awareness of anything else going on. Yet even as a lowly new guy, I could see the whole situation with complete clarity. When I was on the line looking down my gun, I was only seeing what was directly in my field of fire. Now that I had stepped back and looked around, I could see the entire deck, all its obstacles, and the simplest way to clear it. By stepping back, I had detached myself mentally and physically from the immediate problem, and now it was easy for me to see the solution, clearer than even the more experienced SEALs in my platoon. I took a breath and paused for another second to confirm no one else was going to move, look around, or make a call. No one was moving. The platoon was frozen. I had to do something. Hold left, move right, I barked in as authoritative a voice I could muster. Even as I said it, I half expected someone to look over, see it was me, a new guy trying to make a call, and tell me to shut my mouth. Instead, each member of the platoon did what we were always trained to do when we hear a verbal command. They passed the word. Hold left, move right, hold left, move right. The word repeated down the line. As the word was passed, it simultaneously turned into action. The guys on the left side of the deck held their position, scanning for targets, covering the threats, as the guys on the right began to move to push through and clear the area from the right flank. This was not a complex tactical call. It was a standard cover-and-move procedure that we had practiced and rehearsed countless times. And as soon as the guys heard it, they did it. As they executed the movement, I realized something very powerful. I realized that by high-porting my weapon, stepping back off the firing line and looking around, by detaching myself physically, even if only by a few inches, and, more important, detaching mentally from the problem at hand, I was able to see infinitely more than anyone else in my platoon. And since I was able to see everything, I was able to make a good decision, which allowed me, a new guy, and the most junior guy in the platoon, to lead. The cellar deck was soon cleared, and we continued moving through the rig, clearing the remaining levels. No one complained or objected to my decision, and once we'd completed the run, one of the more senior guys actually told me I had made a good call. My platoon's reaction reinforced this idea of detaching, and I began to do it as often as I could. It wasn't easy. Sometimes I would still get caught up focusing on the things immediately in front of me. But at a minimum, I became aware of it. Then I made it my goal to never be completely caught up in the minuscule tactical aspects of a problem. My goal was to get to a higher mental and physical altitude to see more. Just as it had worked on the oil rig, detachment worked in land warfare, in close quarters combat, and in the urban training areas. 
It worked in every simulated combat environment we were put in. The more often I detached, the easier it became to see and understand the tactical picture, and the better I got at it. As I got older, increased in rank, and was put into actual designated leadership positions, detaching became one of the foundations of my leadership style. Eventually, I realized that detaching not only worked in tactical scenarios, but in life. When having a conversation with someone, I realized that if I detached, I could better read their emotions and their reactions. I also realized that if I was able to detach, I could better assess and manage my own emotions and reactions. When I became an assistant platoon commander, platoon commander, and task unit commander, I learned to detach myself from the mission planning process so I would not be caught up in the details and so I would be able to see the bigger picture and come across as the tactical genius that had all the answers. Detachment is one of the most powerful tools a leader can have. The question is, pragmatically, how do you do it? Step one is to be aware. Pay attention to yourself and what is happening around you. Make it a goal to avoid being fully absorbed in the minute details of any situation. Don't let it happen. If you are staying aware, checking yourself, you will be likelier to avoid getting tunnel vision. Listen to indicators like your breath, your voice. Are you breathing hard? Are you raising your voice? Be aware of your body. Are you clenching your teeth or squeezing your fists? All these reactions are signs of getting emotional about the situation. When that happens, or when a situation is becoming chaotic, step back. Physically, take a step back. Lift your chin up, which elevates your vision and compels you to look around. Once you are physically detached from the situation, this cues you to do the same thing mentally. Take a deep breath and exhale. Look methodically from the left to the right and back again. This is another cue from your body to your mind to relax, look around, absorb what you are seeing, let go of your emotions, and make a dispassionate and accurate assessment of the situation so you can make a good decision. When you begin to follow these steps and detach, you will see it is one of the most powerful tools a leader can have. Of course, there is a dichotomy to detachment that must be balanced. You can take it too far. You can become so detached that you lose the connection to what is happening. This is unusual, but if it does happen, if you begin to lose touch with your scenario, don't fret. Just take a step back in, get a little closer to the problem, and engage. Second platoon, arrogance and humility. Once you finish your first deployment as a new guy, you aren't a new guy anymore. As you are assigned to your second platoon, you graduate from new guy to one cruise wonder, which means you might not be a new guy anymore, but you still don't know everything, although you think you might. There was a solid contingent of one cruise wonders in my second platoon at SEAL Team 1. The team had kept a bunch of us together from our previous platoon and then added some of the other one cruise wonders from some of the other platoons. Our platoon chief, was actually a senior chief who was very smart and experienced. 
as was our leading petty officer, or LPO. We also happen to have an incredibly talented leader as our assistant platoon commander, the Navy midshipman, record-setting quarterback, Alton Lee Grizzard. Not only was he overflowing with natural leadership capability, he had deployed already and taken part in real-world operations in Somalia. So, the platoon leadership was very strong. All except for the actual platoon commander himself. He had done a lateral transfer from another occupational specialty in the Navy to become a SEAL. This meant that even though he was a senior lieutenant, he was very inexperienced in the SEAL teams. He had not done a SEAL team workup or deployment yet. He did not have the experience a platoon commander would normally have. And yet, he was in charge of the platoon. That alone is not a big deal. The military is set up to work that way. An inexperienced officer is surrounded by solid senior enlisted personnel who give the officer tactical guidance and keep things running smoothly. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. But in this platoon, it wasn't working that way at all. In this particular case, the platoon commander did not want to listen to advice from his senior enlisted leadership or from any of us. Even though he was the least experienced individual in the platoon, besides the new guys, he wanted to make all the decisions. All the plans were his plans. All the decisions were his decisions. He did not want to listen to anyone. Needless to say, this did not go over very well. Not only did it rub the senior enlisted leadership the wrong way, when the rest of us troops saw that he did not take input from the senior enlisted leadership, it made us nervous. If he wasn't listening to the advice being offered from the most experienced guys in the platoon, we worried his plans might be suspect. We were right. The plans the platoon commander created and imposed on us were not good. And it showed. We had some issues out in the field. We didn't accomplish our training missions at the level we should have. But our subpar performance didn't change the attitude of the platoon commander. When we failed a training mission, he blamed others. He would never recognize or admit that perhaps his plan wasn't the best, or maybe the decisions he made in the field weren't good calls. Looking back, it is obvious that what this officer lacked in experience he made up for with a massive ego. I didn't fully understand this at the time. I just didn't have the experience to recognize what was going on. But it is clear now that he lacked any level of humility whatsoever. I have to give credit to my senior chief and leading petty officer. We young enlisted guys watched as our senior enlisted leaders did their best to counsel, cajole, influence, and mentor. They spent extra time explaining how things worked. They tried to get him to put his ego in check and let some of them make some of the tactical decisions. Unfortunately, they failed to change him. Months went by and there was no improvement in the platoon commander's behavior. Finally, one late night before an arduous training mission out in the desert, our LPO, the second most senior enlisted man in the platoon, had had enough. He disagreed with the platoon commander's plan, and he let him know it. The disagreement escalated into an argument, 
and then a full-on yelling match. And finally, the platoon commander snapped and took a swing at the LPO. We all jumped in and separated the two, but it was a bad scene. Now, it should be known that there are certainly a fair share of friendly scraps in a healthy SEAL platoon. Verbal jousting often leads to a round of good-natured fisticuffs or perhaps a light-hearted grappling match. But this fight was different. There was no playing around in this situation. And even worse, it was an officer taking a swing at an enlisted man. Over the next few days, a dark mood fell over the platoon. We realized we had a real problem. Our officer was arrogant and not listening to anyone. That was bad enough, but now he had tried to hit our LPO. This was unacceptable. We wouldn't stand for it. The grumblings about the situation turned into a roar, and our disorganized complaints became organized. We needed to make a stand. We had some closed-door meetings amongst the enlisted men. We consulted our senior chief and LPO, and eventually we decided we would go to see our commanding officer and tell him we didn't want to work for our platoon commander. We wanted him gone. This was a mutiny. Now, I don't want to make this sound more dramatic than it was, but according to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the legal code by which military members must abide, a person who is found guilty of attempted mutiny, mutiny, sedition, or failure to report a mutiny or sedition shall be punished by death. And this is what we were doing, revolting against our leader. Of course, this was peacetime, and there was zero chance of the situation escalating into a criminal mutiny where we would be taken to court-martial. But it was a serious situation to have enlisted troops asking to have their platoon commander fired. A couple of days later, we got back to the team from the desert training area. Our senior chief talked to the master chief of the command, the senior enlisted man at SEAL Team 1, and explained the situation. He got us a meeting with the commanding officer of SEAL Team 1. Our commanding officer was a highly respected leader. He was down-to-earth and charismatic, with a great reputation as a tactical operator, a rare reputation for a senior officer to have. When scheduled, the enlisted men of our platoon reported to the commanding officer's office. He called us in and asked us individually to explain the situation. One by one, we told him our versions of what we had seen the night the platoon commander tried to hit our LPO, and we detailed the general atmosphere of the platoon. I told him the platoon commander doesn't really listen to anyone else. It's his way or the highway. The commanding officer listened intently. I thought he was on board with what we were saying, but after the last man had spoken, he looked up and down the line and said, listen up, boys. I get that the situation might not be ideal. It sounds like there are some personality conflicts, but this also sounds like a mutiny. And we don't allow mutinies in the Navy. So stop it. Go back to your platoon, get to work, and get this figured out. Understand? Yes, sir, we all replied. It made sense. We had spoken our minds, and we were told to get back in line. We did. Because we had such respect for the commanding officer, we didn't question what he said. He told us to get back in line, and we did. 
we went down to our platoon space and got back to work. The commanding officer had squashed our rebellion. He was right. Mutinies are not allowed in the Navy, and he wasn't going to have one at his SEAL team. But it turns out, he also wasn't going to have a bad platoon commander. Over the next couple of days, the commanding officer consulted with the command master chief, talked more with our platoon senior chief, and did a thorough assessment of the platoon commander's leadership shortfalls. And, based on that assessment, called our platoon commander into the commanding officer's office and relieved him of his duties as platoon commander. It wasn't a mutiny from the troops. It was a decision by the commanding officer. The platoon commander was removed from his position and removed from SEAL Team 1. This alone might have been a good leadership lesson for me as a young SEAL. Arrogance and throwing your rank around does not work. But I'm not sure I would have really understood that lesson had it not been for what happened next. With the old platoon commander fired, we got a new platoon commander, and he was the complete opposite of his predecessor. Everyone in the SEAL teams had heard of our new platoon commander. He went by his initials, but from the phonetic alphabet, Delta Charlie. Delta Charlie had an incredible reputation as an officer and as an enlisted man. He had started his career off as an enlisted man and risen through the ranks all the way to senior chief, the second from the top enlisted rank in the Navy just beneath master chief. He had then earned his commission and become an officer. In his career, he had been assigned to every job a SEAL could have. He had initially been at the old underwater demolition team before they were decommissioned and turned into the SEAL teams. He had been a plank owner at Richard Marcinko's SEAL team. He was stationed at a regular SEAL team, the special boat team, served as an instructor at BUDS, and even the SEAL delivery vehicle team, home of Naval Special Warfare Command's mini-submarines. On top of all that, he had combat experience. He had participated in the invasion of Grenada as a member of the element tasked with taking control of the country's main radio tower. We didn't know much about that operation, but we knew one thing. It was real, and none of us had done anything real. As I heard about Delta Charlie taking over, I was excited, but also intimidated. After all, as a one-cruise wonder, I thought I had some knowledge but I didn't think that knowledge would stack up against that possessed by someone like Delta Charlie, who had infinitely more experience than I or anyone else in the platoon had. I also imagined that Delta Charlie was assigned this platoon to straighten us out, to ensure this young group of mutineers was put in its place. I figured we were in for some stern leadership and strict control after our rebellion. I braced for impact. Then I met Delta Charlie for the first time. He was not what I had expected at all. He was smaller than I'd imagined, standing about five foot seven or so, and had a fairly lean build, probably weighing in at around 165 pounds, give or take. He also had a relaxed way about him. He seemed very calm, usually carrying a half smile on his face. When he spoke to us for the first time, he said, I'm looking forward to working with all of you. That was the first indicator of what kind of a leader Delta Charlie was going to be. It was subtle, but I noticed it. He didn't say, I'm looking forward to leading you, or 
I'm glad to be taking over this platoon, or I run a tight ship, or even I'm honored to be taking over as your commander. Instead, he said he was looking forward to working with us all. His use of the word with standing in stark contrast to what we had been hearing from the old platoon commander who always separated himself from us in his speech. But Delta Charlie was different. He indicated not that he was above us or separate from us, but that he was one of us. But the contrast between Delta Charlie and his predecessor went way beyond that. These two men were diametrically opposed in every possible way, and this was lucky for me because the contrast between these two leaders was so stark it left an impression on me and impacted my actions as a leader for the rest of my life. One of the biggest differences between Delta Charlie and his predecessor was that Delta Charlie had a massive amount of experience, while the former platoon commander had next to none, like the rest of the new guys. Delta Charlie had done everything. The former platoon commander had done nothing. Since Delta Charlie had so much experience, I expected him to tell us exactly how to do everything. After all, that is what the old platoon commander had done, despite his lack of experience and knowledge. The former platoon commander had always come up with his own plan, told us how he wanted us to execute, and expected us to execute it based on those specific orders. So I found it quite shocking, as did the rest of the enlisted men in the platoon, that Delta Charlie didn't order us around at all. He didn't come up with his own plans for everything. He didn't tell us how he wanted us to do things. He executed classic decentralized command. He told us what needed to get done and then told us to go figure out how we wanted to do it. And when I say us, I'm not only talking about the senior enlisted personnel. I'm talking about us junior enlisted personnel as well. He would tell me or a few of the other junior guys, hey, here is the mission for tonight. Figure out how you think we should do it and let me know. We were nervous, but thrilled. We wanted to do a good job, and we put our utmost effort into coming up with a tactically sound plan. Once we had one, we would present it to Delta Charlie. Inevitably, he would find some mistakes in it which he would point out to us. I was always impressed that we could spend four or five hours poring over the presumptive operation, staring at a map, discussing and poking holes in our ideas, and when we would finally present the plan to Delta Charlie, he would quickly assess it and point out a few problems. It was amazing. He seemed like a tactical genius. But what I realized later was that he was detached from the planning process so he could see it from altitude and easily see where the holes were. This is the exact opposite thing from what would happen when our former platoon commander would come up with a plan on his own and then force it down upon us. When that happened, we were the ones seeing the holes in his plan, and we couldn't fathom how he could come up with such a horrible one. On top of that, when Delta Charlie would allow us to come up with a plan, we would have complete ownership of it. Of course we did. It was our plan. He didn't need to convince us to buy into it. We had already bought in. And when we would go into the field to execute the plan, since it was our plan, we were completely committed to making it a success. 
When we would hit an obstacle, we would find a way around it, over it, or through it. We would stop at nothing to execute the plan and accomplish the mission. That attitude was totally contrary to how we felt about the former platoon commander's plans. They were his plans, not ours. So we didn't have ownership of them, and it was a struggle for him to get us to buy into them. After all, we are humans with our own ideas, and because of our egos, we often think our ideas are the best. When he imposed a plan on us, we would automatically think of how much better our own plan would be. And we kept that in the back of our heads, especially when we went into the field. When we hit an obstacle, instead of trying to figure out a way to overcome it, we simply thought, the platoon commander didn't think of this, did he? His plan is awful. My plan would have been much better. Without everyone buying into the plan, taking ownership, and making every possible effort to ensure it was carried out and the mission accomplished, there was a good chance it would fail. There was another thing Delta Charlie did that made an impression on me. He took out the trash. This is no big deal. And I likely wouldn't have thought too much about it, except for the fact that I never saw the former platoon commander do it. You see, the platoon office, or as it is called in the SEAL teams, the platoon hut, needs to be cleaned every day. This assignment usually goes to the new guys. At the end of every day, the new guys sweep up, dust off, and take out the trash. Cleaning is a menial but necessary task, and it keeps the new guys humble. As a one cruise wonder, I felt I was way above cleaning up. I didn't need to do that anymore. And the higher up you went in the chain of command, it seemed to me the more distance there was from the menial task of cleaning up. Unless you were Delta Charlie. At the end of each day, he would take out the trash. Maybe run a broom through the space. It was no big deal. It took him less than two minutes to push the broom, then consolidate the trash into two or three garbage cans in the platoon space, take them outside, and throw them in the dumpster. But those two minutes left a mark on me. This was a tangible and physical action that represented pure humility. Delta Charlie was the most senior man in the platoon. He also had the most experience. But there he was, taking out the garbage. And yet I was too good to do it? We only had to see it a couple times before the other lower enlisted guys and I started preemptively taking out the trash and cleaning the space so Delta Charlie didn't have to do it. We did it out of respect. Respect that Delta Charlie didn't demand, but earned. The former platoon commander, on the other hand, had eschewed any kind of menial labor. It was below him. He was the almighty platoon commander, the officer in charge. He wasn't going to take out the garbage. And when he acted that way, well, we weren't going to take out his garbage either. None of the lower enlisted guys did anything to help him out. He was on his own. And while Delta Charlie was a phenomenal tactician, an incredible planner, and a gifted operator, it was his humility more than anything else that drove the platoon to want to do a good job for him. We didn't want to let him down. We didn't want to disappoint him in any way. And we certainly didn't want to make him look anything less than perfect to our commanding officer. So we worked as hard as we could in everything we did. 
everything. And this dedication showed in the way the platoon performed. It was the best platoon I was ever a part of. That platoon changed the course of my life, and Delta Charlie had an immense impact on me because when you are a young SEAL in a SEAL platoon, that SEAL platoon is your whole world. In that platoon, under the original platoon commander, our world was miserable. But when Delta Charlie came in and took over, almost instantly, our whole world was good. That was one of the strongest displays of the impact of leadership I had ever seen. I thought at the time, Delta Charlie just made the world good for this whole platoon. One day, if I can, I am going to try to make the world good for 16 SEALs in a platoon. And it was that thought right there that started me on the path of becoming an officer. The core of what Delta Charlie taught me was the importance of humility. He had all that experience and all that knowledge and the rank and the position. He had every reason to elevate himself above us, every reason to look down on us, every reason to act as if he were better than everyone else. But he never looked down on us at all. The fact that he didn't is what made us respect him and want, truly want, to follow him. I still try to follow his example to this day. Third platoon, overstepping my bounds. In my third platoon, our core group of guys stuck together once again. We knew one another well, trusted one another, and we operated together like a close-knit team. As happened with every platoon at that time, once we got back from deployment with Delta Charlie as our platoon commander, we got a new platoon commander. He was a solid guy with a good reputation, and we liked him a lot. Of course, he had big shoes to fill, and he knew that, but it didn't bother him. He didn't make any attempts to be Delta Charlie. Instead, he just forged his own path and led with his strengths, which worked out fine. Even though he didn't have the experience Delta Charlie did, by that point, we lower enlisted guys had learned so much from Delta Charlie that we could make a lot of things happen on our own. The new platoon commander knew that and was good with it. We had a good workup, which is what we called our pre-deployment training cycle. And then we were sent on deployment overseas on board a U.S. Navy ship. There was no war going on, so we worked in other countries, either training the host nation military or finding training to do on our own. At one point, we left the ship and went into the desert in a country in the Persian Gulf region to conduct unilateral training, meaning it was just us, no foreign counterparts or other American forces. We set up some land warfare training in the middle of the desert to run some refresher exercises for our immediate action drills, or IADs, for land warfare. IADs are the pre-planned movements a SEAL platoon will execute when contacted by the enemy, almost like pre-planned plays run by a football team. There are multiple pre-designated calls that are used to give instructions to the members of the platoon for what maneuver is to be executed. Flanking the enemy, breaking contact, getting online, moving forward, backward, left, or right. These calls are usually made by the platoon commander or the platoon chief, depending on where the enemy is located. 
In this particular drill, we were patrolling when we were attacked by the enemy. All that actually meant was that we spotted some man-shaped silhouette targets that had been set up, and we started shooting at them. As the radio man, I was toward the front of the platoon, just behind the platoon commander who follows behind the point man. When the shooting started, we all dropped into our fields of fire just as we had trained countless times before. I quickly scanned my field of fire, then mentally detached and started to swivel my head and look around to assess the situation. We were slightly behind a small sand berm, which provided most of us with good, solid cover. I was out of danger, so I elevated my head a bit to take a better look. I saw that the berm actually provided a good escape route, and we could simply peel behind it one man at a time. I waited for the platoon commander to make the call, but he didn't. I waited a little longer, still no call. Because I was detached and out of danger behind the berm, I knew exactly what had to happen. The call needed to come out, but it still didn't. Another second or two went by, and finally I shouted, Peel right! As we were trained, everyone passed the word, and we commenced the peel right maneuver. It went smoothly. It was one of the most basic calls and simplest maneuvers we were trained to do. A few minutes later, after we had put a couple hundred meters between us and the enemy contact, we formed a hasty perimeter, set 360-degree security, redistributed ammunition, confirmed our headcount, and then called ceasefire and index, which meant end of exercise. We did a quick debrief. The platoon commander seemed frustrated. What were you doing making that call, he asked. No call was being made, so I just made it. In the absence of orders, lead, I said, quoting an old military leadership maxim. There was no absence of orders. I was assessing. I wanted to assault through the enemy. You spoke too soon, he told me. He didn't make that big of a deal out of it, but I could certainly sense he wasn't happy with what I had done. Now, it would have been easy for me to get defensive and attack the platoon commander. You weren't making the call, and someone had to, I could have told him. But that was wrong. Instead, I realized I had made a mistake. It wasn't a grievous error, but I had overstepped my bounds. And doing that had a negative effect on the situation because we hadn't executed what the platoon commander had intended. But it had a positive effect on me because it taught me a lesson. From that moment on, I realized I didn't always need to lead. I didn't need to be at the center of the decision-making. I realized it was my job to support the team and the mission, which meant supporting the boss. I learned this lesson relatively painlessly. But as I continued in the SEAL teams, I saw the same type of mistake manifest itself in awful ways as egos clashed over who was in charge, who made calls, who led, and who followed. I saw people throughout my career, and still see it today in the business world, jockeying for position and maneuvering against one another rather than maneuvering against the enemy. I learned that day that even though I had to be ready to lead, I also had to know when to follow, and that to be a good leader, I had to be a good follower. I learned to subordinate my ego to the mission and to my boss. Does that mean I am weak? No, 
It means I put the team and the mission above myself so that we can win. And that simple lesson played out thousands of times throughout my career. Laws of combat and principles of leadership. I learned countless other lessons along the way over the following years and deployments. The lessons were tested during my last deployment where I led SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser in the Battle of Ramadi. That deployment is where most of the combat examples Leif Babin and I wrote about in Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership come from. But the principles were not fully crystallized until I took over the tactical training for the West Coast SEAL teams. That training is not individual training where lone SEALs learn individual skills like sniping or combat trauma care, but collective training where SEALs work together as platoons and task units to hash out their standard operating procedures and learn to integrate together to accomplish their missions. This is the training where SEALs learn to shoot, move, and communicate, where they learn to close with and destroy the enemy, and where they learn combat leadership. The training I ran covers all tactical environments. There is work in rural terrain, such as deserts, forests, or mountains. There is work in urban environments, like cities and villages, and close quarters inside buildings of all shapes and sizes. During this training, SEALs learn to transit great distances over the ocean in small boats or under the ocean on rebreathing scuba gear. They jump out of airplanes, repel from helicopters, and learn and rehearse the tactics of fighting with and from vehicles in formation. They do all these things together as a team. The end of each block of training consists of what we call an FTX phase. FTX stands for Field Training Exercise, and it consists of full mission profiles, where the SEAL task units conduct the entire progression of mock operations, from planning to rehearsals, insertion, infiltration, and actions at the objective on the target itself, followed by exfiltration and extraction back to base. Once back at base, they will go through the drills of analyzing the intelligence they gathered and using that intelligence to plan and prepare for follow-on training operations. The FTX phase usually consists of about five to seven days of continuous operations. Sleep is limited and stress is high. The planning cycle is short and demands good foresight and organization. Once the platoons are in the field, stress is maximized. The training cadre goes to great lengths to simulate combat. Platoons are loaded out with simunition paintball rounds or a multi-million dollar laser tag system that mounts on the SEAL's real weapons. The laser tag system also requires the SEALs to wear sensors that detect when they are being shot. When hit, the sensor vest also has small speakers that announce what type of wound the SEAL has suffered or if the SEAL has been killed. The speakers also provide sound effects of bullets snapping overhead or whizzing close by or explosions going off in the area. The paintball and laser systems allow SEALs to actively fight against other SEALs who role-play as the bad guys, or as we call them, OP-4, which is short for opposing force. The OP-4 are experienced SEAL training cadre who know the SEAL tactics. 
Without question, they are the toughest enemy the SEAL platoons and task units will ever face. In addition to the Op 4 who dress up in enemy garb, there are other things the training cadre does to make the training realistic. They use professional set designers to make the training areas look like Iraq, Afghanistan, or any other locale that SEALs might be fighting in. The buildings are given facades and other treatment to make them resemble the architecture and construction materials seen overseas. There are street signs and graffiti written in foreign languages. Even entire markets are established, complete with local goods ready to be bought or traded. Also inserted into those scenes are other role players besides the Op 4, who do not play hostile insurgents or terrorists, but innocent civilians. For those characters, the training cadre hires ethnic actors and actresses who not only look and dress the part, but also speak the language, creating another obstacle for the SEALs going through the training. The final component in creating stress is the use of special effects and pyrotechnics. Explosions, smoke, fire, rockets, grenades, and simulated improvised explosive devices are utilized to cause stress and add to the realism of the scenario. With all these elements combined, the training is extremely realistic. Looking through night vision goggles and seeing the detail on the buildings, the people moving around, and the explosions going off, it isn't hard to slip into the mindset that you aren't training at all. You are at war. This was the training I took over when I came back from the Battle of Ramadi. Within a few days of taking over the training, Fresh off the battlefield myself, I went out to the desert to observe a SEAL task unit going through its land warfare FTX phase. It was an absolute disaster. A complete and utter failure. I was apprehensive as I watched the members plan. The situation was extremely complex. They had been tasked with hitting a target in the desert that consisted of one large building in a small valley surrounded by six smaller buildings. They had broken their force into six different elements, each of which was approaching the target from a different direction. While it seemed like the best way to isolate the target and mitigate the opportunities for someone to escape from it, it was also very complicated. It minimized the ability for the teams to support or even communicate with one another. When teams are split apart, confusion can easily ensue. When teams are split into six different elements, that confusion is multiplied. Keep things simple is an ancient military maxim that holds true for any type of planning. This task unit was failing to keep things simple. Once out on target, things got even worse. The assault commenced and almost immediately some of the elements were pinned down by enemy fire. But because of their distance from the other SEAL elements, they could not be supported. None of the other elements could provide cover fire, which meant the elements that were pinned down could not move. When they did try to move without any cover fire, they suffered more casualties. This was a lesson I had learned from the Vietnam SEALs who put me through training. A lesson that was reinforced in everything we did in the SEAL teams. Cover and move. If you are going to move, you must have someone covering for you, protecting you. This can mean someone actually actively shooting to keep the enemy's heads down or someone in a good position actively scanning for enemy personnel to appear 
as you move. This is the fundamental tactic of everything we do as SEALs. If we are in a shooting pair, just two men, and we have to secure a prisoner, one SEAL keeps his weapon trained on the enemy, while the other SEAL maneuvers to take physical control of the prisoner. If the prisoner makes a move, the SEAL on his gun can eliminate the threat. If a platoon is doing a danger crossing, that is, crossing a road or a river, we always bring up additional security to hold down the road and make sure no enemy approaches. And if the enemy does approach, the additional security are ready to engage and cover the movement of the platoon across the open area. As we move down a hallway, there are always one or two SEALs with their weapons trained down the length of it, covering the movement of the rest of the platoon. If we are operating in fire teams in a rural environment, while one team is moving, the other team is putting down suppressive fire, or at least scanning the terrain for the enemy. The same thing happens during a target assault. One team sets a base position and puts down heavy suppressive fire while the other team moves through the target. And as they move through, the base element shifts fire, staying ahead of the maneuver element. Cover and move is even utilized at a larger scale. As a platoon or task unit moves into an area, there is often an aircraft overhead, covering by watching with powerful optical sensors, scanning the area and ready to provide fire support if necessary. But on this particular FTX, the various elements were not able to cover for one another at all. On top of that, one of the larger elements got bogged down in confronting multiple problems in the large main building of the target. They were being shot at with paintballs from multiple directions, and some of the men had already been wounded. There were multiple innocent civilians scared and screaming for help, and the leader did not know where all his men were, so he did not want to exit the building for fear of leaving someone behind. I stood and watched the leader. He was trying to get his wounded men tended to. He was trying to get a good headcount. He was trying to get control of the civilians. Lastly, he was trying to figure out where his element was getting shot at from. What he didn't seem to realize was that if he didn't stop the enemy from shooting at him, if he didn't win that firefight or at least suppress the enemy fire, none of his other problems were going to matter because they would all be dead. He kept trying to do too many things simultaneously, and by trying to do everything, he was accomplishing nothing. He needed to figure out his biggest priority problem and execute a plan to fix that problem before moving on to the next one. He needed to prioritize and execute. As he tried to lead his troops to do what he wanted, he was giving out long, intricate, and complicated instructions. With those complex instructions added to the existing chaos and confusion, no one really understood what he wanted them to do. His language was too convoluted. Without understanding what he wanted them to do, there was no possible way the troops could execute. Again, he needed to keep things simple. In this case, his language. Those complex orders also revealed the final problem I noticed. Everyone on the team was waiting to be told what to do. The platoon commanders were waiting for direction from the task unit commander. The squad leaders were waiting for a call from the platoon commanders. The fire team leaders were waiting for orders from the squad leaders. And the individual SEALs, the machine gunners and assaulters, the corpsmen and the radio men, everyone, 
They were all waiting to be told what to do. All direction was stemming only from the most senior leader. All command was centralized. As they waited for orders, they froze and did nothing. But what they all needed to do was take initiative. They needed to make things happen. They needed to understand the broad direction from the boss, and then they needed to act. What they needed was decentralized command. Soon it was clear the task unit was completely combat ineffective, so I told the op four to back off and not commence any further attacks. The task unit was broken, and its members wallowed in their misery as they slowly pulled together enough of a plan to carry their dead and wounded off the battlefield to the extraction point. It was a brutal struggle to accomplish this, as more than half the task unit were casualties. Carrying two to three hundred pound bodies over steep and rough terrain for four or five hours gave the members plenty of time to think about what they had done wrong. It gave me plenty of time to think as well. The thing that stood out to me more than anything else was that the whole reason this task unit had failed so miserably was because of one thing and one thing only. Leadership. Then, I realized that of everything I was responsible for teaching these SEALs, far and away the most important thing I needed to teach them was how to lead. I needed to take the lessons I had learned in my career, lessons that could be traced back to our Vietnam SEAL forefathers who had brought back lessons from their time in combat, lessons that I had deployed with to Iraq and had been crystallized by the crucible of sustained combat. I needed to take those lessons and distill them down into something these young SEAL leaders could easily understand and implement in their platoons and task units. When I got back to the barracks that night, I sat down at a table in the chow hall and wrote down what I believed to be the most important and fundamental principles of combat leadership, what I would eventually call the laws of combat. Cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, and decentralized command. Cover and move came first because it is the root of all other tactics and because it is teamwork. A unit in the field by itself is a fraction of what it is when it has another unit supporting it. Two teams working together, covering and moving for each other, don't just double their effectiveness. They multiply their impact and capability exponentially. Without coordination and cooperation between individuals, between elements within a team, and between teams, all is lost. One of the severest warnings I used to give SEAL fire teams, squads, platoons, and task units was to maintain a supporting distance between elements. That is a doctrinal term for small units, which means the distance between two units that can be covered effectively by their fires. I would add to this that the distance must be able to be covered by primary or at least secondary communications. That way, each element can get help if they need it. As soon as an element is out of supporting distance, they are all but doomed. So, cover and move, teamwork, is the highest priority in the laws of combat. Next is simple. Once we have established the ability to cover and move, we have a team that can work together, then we need a simple and distinct goal. 
Everyone on the team must understand that goal. It must be clear. In addition to the goal being simple and clear, plans and directives must be communicated up and down the chain of command in a simple, clear, concise manner that can be comprehended by everyone. Simplicity is key because if the team members cannot understand the goal or the plan to accomplish that goal, there is no possible way they can execute. So keep it simple. The next law is prioritize and execute. There will be multiple tasks that need to be accomplished or numerous problems that must be solved. If the leader or team members try to accomplish too many things at once, they will likely accomplish nothing. The most impactful task or the biggest problem must be addressed first, then the next, then the next, and so on until everything is handled. The final law is decentralized command. For a team to utilize decentralized command, it must implement the other laws. Then decentralized command comes to life. Everyone on the team must step up and lead. A task unit has eight, four, five-man fire teams in it. Each of those fire teams has a leader. I used to ask the task unit commanders, what if each of those fire team leaders clearly knew what your intent was and what you wanted the task unit to accomplish, and they took initiative to make that intent come to fruition? It was a rhetorical question because they knew the answer. If the fire team leaders were moving their teams toward the commander's broad goal on their own initiative, things would be fairly easy for the task unit commander. But that all hinged on the task unit commander simply and clearly conveying his intent. Only if the fire team leaders understood that intent could they execute anything. And their execution also depended on their confidence to make decisions and the level of empowerment they felt. Only if the fire team leaders felt they were empowered to make things happen would they step up and lead. That empowerment had to be ingrained in the minds of the subordinate leaders. It had to be embedded in the culture of the team. These four concepts, cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, and decentralize command are the four laws of combat, and they work. I saw it over and over again. As the SEAL platoons and task units improved their ability to implement these laws through the various blocks of training, their ability to accomplish tasks and overcome problems improved. And eventually, the units that got really good could defeat the op for regardless of what the op for did. Conversely, when a task unit failed to learn to utilize these laws, it failed its missions. And its failures always tied directly back into the failure of the unit to follow or effectively implement one or more of the laws. The laws were solid, but they were not easy to master. Mastery took training and required failures. But once the laws took root, they worked. There were two more components of leadership that I solidified during my time as the commander of the training detachment. Extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. Extreme ownership is a mindset of not making excuses and not blaming anyone or anything else when problems occur. Instead of casting blame or making excuses, good leaders and good teams take extreme ownership of the problems, find solutions, and implement those solutions. 
failure to take ownership results in problems never being solved and teams never improving. The dichotomy of leadership describes opposing forces that are pulling leaders in contradictory directions at the same time. Any trait, technique, or attitude can easily go too far in one direction or the other. To lead properly, a leader must be balanced. For example, leaders must talk, but if they talk too much, they overwhelm their subordinates with information. On the other hand, if they talk too little, the troops aren't properly informed. So the leader has to balance between talking too much and talking too little. A leader must be aggressive, but if they're too aggressive, they might expose themselves to unnecessary risk. Contrarily, if they are not aggressive enough, they will never make progress. So, once again, a leader has to be balanced. This list of dichotomies goes on indefinitely, and the answer is always that a leader must maintain balance. As I watched platoons go through training, I saw over and over again the importance of both extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. These principles were the cement that held the laws of combat together as platoons dealt with arduous training and combat scenarios. But the laws and principles didn't only apply to tactical leadership on the battlefield. The more deeply I understood the laws of combat, the more I saw them in everything I did. I saw them on the jujitsu mats, I saw them in my family life, and I saw the laws of combat also applied to leadership. Maneuvering through intricate relationships, building coalitions, and getting people to buy into plans and ideas. Dealing with egos and personalities, understanding and influencing people and teams. The same laws applied. And just as the laws were difficult to master from a tactical perspective on the battlefield, they are equally difficult to master in non-combat leadership situations. But the more a leader sees the laws of combat, the more angles from which a leader can look at them, the better the leader will comprehend and be able to implement the laws and the principles of extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. The power of relationships. There is another key element to leading any exceptional team, relationships. Leadership requires relationships. Good relationships with the people above you, below you, and beside you in the chain of command are critical for a strong team. The better the relationships, the more open and effective communication there is. The more communication there is, the stronger the team will be. For example, there are times when a boss is driving forward on a less than ideal path that needs to be redirected. If you have a good relationship with a boss, you can explain, tactfully, what you see to be errors in their thoughts and ideas. As always, the approach you use to discuss this is important. Put the onus on yourself as to why the idea doesn't make sense. For example, you know, boss, I really want to support the plan to the best of my ability, but I'm having a hard time understanding how to execute this part of it. Can you explain why you want it done that way so I can get it right? Now the conversation is open and you can begin to figure out why the boss's idea is what it is and what you can do to influence that idea. But before even getting to that point, ask yourself some simple questions. First, how much will be gained by approaching the boss and trying to convince them to change their plan? 
if the difference is minimal, it is probably not worth investing any time or effort into it. Next, ask yourself how much of your concern is just your ego. There is a chance that you are seeing your way of doing something as smarter or more efficient than what the boss has offered. If that's the case, and you don't truly think there's much to be gained by using your method, let it go. Don't create drama over your ego. Lastly, ask yourself if you will be moving your relationship with your boss forward or backward by raising the issue. This is important because you should be constantly trying to build that relationship. You are not building the relationship so you can garner favor from the boss. No, you are trying to build a relationship so the boss trusts you and will listen to you so you and the team can more effectively accomplish the mission. For these reasons, choose your battles carefully. It is obvious that building a trustworthy relationship with your superiors is important. But how do you do that? One of the simplest ways is obvious, but often gets overlooked. That is performance. Your boss expects you to complete certain tasks, so complete them. Do them on time, on budget, and with as little drama as possible. Get the mission done. This includes doing things you might not be in 100% agreement with. I did this throughout my career, and it always served me well. Boss wants me to fill out some extra paperwork? I'll do it. Boss needs me to cover a shift for someone else on the team? I've got it. Boss needs me to clean up some administrative mess that got spilled? I'm on it. Boss has a nasty, low-reward mission that needs executing? I'm all over it. With each of these problems, I am the solution. With each problem I solve, the level of trust the boss has in me goes up. And I will continue on that path. I won't complain or try and shift bad jobs onto someone else or even look for some kind of praise. I will simply put my head down and do the work. Over time, my boss will know that I am the person who can make things happen. And more important, I gain clout with the boss. This is the opposite of the subordinate who complains and objects or always thinks he has a better way to do things. He loses influence with the boss every time he opens his mouth. Any objection from that subordinate is seen by the boss as another typical excuse. The more you talk, the less people listen. On the other hand, when I do what needs to be done, the boss trusts that I can make things happen. The boss also knows that if I do raise an objection, it is likely to be founded on solid facts that should be considered. Since I get things done and don't constantly voice my objections, the boss actually listens. I always utilized this strategy with my senior leadership, and it worked well. I would simply make things happen as often as I could. But how does this appear from the perspective of your subordinates? For instance, if I recognize that there are some flaws in my boss's plan, then my subordinates certainly recognize the same thing. What do I tell them? How do I preserve their respect if they think I can't see the errors the boss is making? The answer is simple. I tell them the truth. Hey team, I know there might be some better ways to skin this cat, but at this point, the effort to change the plan would take almost the same effort that it will just to get the job done. So we're just gonna do it. And let me tell you what else we're doing by getting this done. We are building trust with the boss. 
Every one of these little tasks from him that we crush allows him to trust us more and more. And that gives us the ability to get listened to. So when something comes up that really doesn't make sense, he will listen. That is why we are going to execute this plan to the absolute best of our ability. That is the truth. And the team should understand that perspective. Of course, there's a dichotomy with this. If something that makes no sense whatsoever comes down the pipe, it might be time to present some objections to the boss. If you don't, the team will recognize your failure to speak up, and you may start to appear as a pushover. You will seem like a leader who simply obeys every command from the boss without any pushback at all. This is bad not only down the chain of command, but up it too. Simply being a yes man all the time is not good. A good boss should hear and welcome any and all feedback or criticism of their plans. That isn't always the case, but if you have garnered clout with the boss, you can talk to them. You can present your case against their idea or plan, and they will listen. So ultimately, this leads back to the beginning. One of the most powerful tools you have is a good relationship with your boss. And it doesn't end with your boss. Solid relationships up and down the chain of command are the basis of all good leadership. Play the game. You have to play the game. To be more specific, you have to play the long game. No one wants to hear this, especially from me. People don't want to hear about building relationships. They want me to say, you achieve victory through blunt force trauma. If someone gets in your way, go through them. Any political situation that is not turning out how you wanted it can be solved with a battle axe. That type of hyper-aggressive, take-no-prisoners mentality is certainly simple and straightforward, which is often the kind of leadership advice people expect from me and what they want to hear. Because that attitude is so simple and so straightforward, it hardly seems it could fail. And often, that attitude doesn't fail, at least not at first. A heavy-handed and hostile approach usually works for a little while. You may be able to bludgeon people into doing what you want them to do for a day or two, maybe a week, maybe even a solid few months. Perhaps you can force a couple of projects to completion through ruthless and aggressive offense. But those successes will be short-lived. As you trash relationships, burn bridges, and leave scorched earth in your wake, you will soon look up and realize you are done. You have destroyed everything for short-term gain. You have nothing left. Don't do that. Instead, you have to play the game. That means I try to support my boss and perform my duties to the best of my ability. In playing the game, I am building up trust with my boss. I am building a relationship. Why is it so important to build a good relationship with my boss? Is it so I can get promoted? Is it so I can get assigned easier tasks? No, I am not trying to build the relationship for my own personal gain. I am trying to build a relationship with my boss so we can better accomplish the mission. And playing the game doesn't only go up the chain of command, it goes down the chain of command too. When you're the boss and your subordinates come to you objecting to something you say, listen and ask for alternatives. And when they give you a decent one, say yes to them and utilize the alternative. 
even if their alternative doesn't seem quite as effective or efficient as your methodology, let them do it. This builds trusts and relationships with the people below you in the chain of command. As often as you can, listen and say yes. Eventually, when a subordinate from the team comes to you with an idea that doesn't make sense, you can say no and they won't begrudge you for it. You can simply explain the issues with their idea and why you aren't going to do it that way and they will be okay with it. They will accept your direction without feeling that you don't listen and they will move forward with full commitment to accomplish the mission. I always did this. I always played the game. I worked for every type of leader imaginable. Some were inspirational, hands-off leaders with incredible tactical prowess. Others were micromanaging egomaniacs with no common sense. Some were paranoid, risk-averse overthinkers. But no matter what type of leader I worked for, my goal was always the same, to build a relationship with them so they trusted me, gave me what I needed to get the job done, got out of my way, and let me accomplish the mission. Building those relationships was never easy. It took doing some things that might not have been optimal. It required me swallowing my pride sometimes. It required that I played the game. Playing the game is not easy, but it will build trust and relationships, improve the integrity of the team, and make the team more capable of accomplishing the mission. Don't let your ego or your team's ego cause turmoil. Get a grip on yourself and play the game. Some people feel that if they play the game, if they appease their boss, if they eat crow, if they don't always drive their own personal agenda, they are weak, hypocritical sycophants. This is wrong. If you play the game, you aren't weak. You aren't kissing up to your boss. What you are doing is trying to optimize things so you and your team can best accomplish the mission. You're trying to build relationships and garner influence so you can move things in the right direction. You are not doing this for personal gain. You are not doing this for a promotion. You are playing the game so the team can win. Can you go too far with this? Absolutely. Don't do that. Don't be a brown noser telling the boss that all their ideas are perfect. But be professional, be courteous, be genuinely interested in supporting the boss, which is another key point that people often miss. When I explain how to talk to superiors by saying things like, hey boss, I just want to make sure I completely understand why you want it done this way so I can fully support your plan, I am not recommending you do this only as a way to build the relationships so you can have more influence, I am recommending it so you actually understand why the boss wants it done a certain way. That is real. It isn't manipulation. The goal is to actually support your boss. A collateral benefit is that you build a relationship, and that relationship can end up being more important than anything else. If you are doing something small for your boss, and you feel it might not be the best way, you aren't a hypocrite for following his or her instructions. You are simply storing up leadership capital for a time when it really matters. There is nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you smart. Now, if there is something that you truly don't believe in or that you know will result in a catastrophe for the mission 
and the team, then it is your duty to say no. But those cases should be few and far between. So until you are asked to do something that is devastating to you, the team, and the mission, play the game and build the relationships. When is mutiny in order? As important as it is to build relationships, there are times when a boss must be disobeyed. But it should be an absolute last resort. Disobeying causes massive disruption to the team, sets back progress, can fully jeopardize the mission, and may ultimately result in complete mission failure and total disintegration of the team. But if a leader is asking the team to do something that is illegal, immoral, or unethical, it is the duty of the subordinates to refuse that order. This is obvious. It is inexcusable to do something simply because a person ordered you to do it. There is no excuse for immoral activity. If an individual is unaware of the immorality of their actions or the actions are unavoidable at a particular moment, then as soon as possible, the subordinate must report the event up the chain of command to ensure there is no further illegal activity. There are other times when a subordinate must disobey their leader. If a leader is leading the team in a direction that will result in catastrophic failure, there is a possibility that disobeying the leader or refusing to execute orders is required. Napoleon said that if a subordinate leader executes a mission he knows is wrong, then the subordinate leader is culpable. This is the truth. Unfortunately, few situations are that clear-cut. Again, disobeying or refusing to follow the direction of a superior is an absolute last resort because it is a final measure. Once an order has been refused, there is almost no way to unwind that action. Fortunately, there are many opportunities to avoid outright refusal or disobedience prior to the situation escalating to that point. Before making that last stand, subordinates should ask the boss to restate the purpose of the mission and then assess that mission statement and explain to the boss the concerns. From the boss's vantage point at a higher altitude, he or she may not see some of the granular details and understand how the plan may unfold on the front lines. It is the responsibility of the subordinate to pass this information on and make it clear to the boss what the concerns are. There is a chance that the boss then explains some detail that the frontline leader does not see or does not know about, which justifies the reasoning behind the boss's plan. This is a positive thing. The subordinate now understands the bigger picture and why the boss has chosen a particular course of action and can explain that to his or her team down the chain of command. There is also a possibility that when the subordinate explains his or her concerns to the boss, the boss now sees a detail that they did not see or understand. Ideally, the subordinate not only presents the boss with his or her concerns, but also presents a solution to the problem, another course of action that mitigates the subordinate's apprehension. With this revelation, the boss then reassesses the plan and incorporates the subordinate's solution or comes up with another method of eliminating the problem. 
both of these outcomes are positive. Either the subordinate understands why the boss's plan makes sense and the subordinate agrees, or the plan is changed based on feedback from the subordinate. Either way, the plan is now considered viable by both the boss and the subordinate leaders as well as the rest of the team once it is explained throughout the chain of command. But that is not always the outcome. Sometimes the boss does not change their mind. Whether it is their ego or their pride or just their own inability to assess other considerations, there are times when the boss refuses to alter their plan and simply commands subordinates to move forward. When this happens, the subordinate must redouble their efforts to explain their concerns to the boss in a tactful way. Go back to the drawing board and see if there's any way to effectively implement the boss's plan without putting the mission or the team in jeopardy. Perhaps there are some smaller adjustments that can be made that still support the boss's plan, but at the same time, mitigate the concerns of the subordinate. If this can be done effectively, perhaps the subordinate can move forward as directed, providing the risks are not too significant. But if the risks are still a problem, take the time to go through and capture detailed potential outcomes that can be explained to the boss so they fully understand the risks involved. Then go back and present a logical, unemotional explanation of the problem. It is important to note that in all these cases, objections to the boss should not be presented in an offensive manner. Concerns should not be presented as, this makes no sense, or this plan is ridiculous, or why would we ever do this? Statements like that are wrong on two levels. First, they come across as emotional, and when people present emotional arguments, they are not taken with the maximum degree of seriousness. Second, these statements are offensive to the person who actually came up with the plan, the boss. By attacking the boss's plan, you are actually attacking the boss, and in doing so, you can likely cause them to dig in and become more defensive it is much better to take an indirect approach. It is better for the subordinate to ask questions that put the fault on themselves. Try an approach like, I want to make sure I understand your thinking here so I can learn to think through these issues myself. Or, it's hard for me to understand this clearly since I don't have the experience you do. Each of these approaches will disarm the boss and make sure they don't feel they are under attack. It is also a good strategy to give the boss an easy way out. If you present your own option as the only option, your leader may feel as if using someone else's plan diminishes their leadership. This is, of course, not true, but it is a perception that many people carry. So it is a powerful tool to present ideas to the boss in a way that allows them to own the plan. Perhaps offer one of the other courses of action they had mentioned, however briefly, at an earlier time. Sometimes even saying, I was thinking about one comment you made, and it made me think that maybe we could, is enough to tie the idea back to the leader so they and their ego feel comfortable about it. There are other ways to do this, but at a minimum, do not pit your idea against the boss's idea. That move brings out egos and can negatively impact decision-making. Instead, try to root your ideas back to the boss so the idea is tied directly to them. People almost always like their own ideas better than anyone else's. 
when the boss sees a fully developed case against their plan, they are likely to explain other details that alleviate the concerns the subordinates might not have understood or recognize the shortfalls of their plan and make adjustments. Either way, the team is now aligned behind the plan. But this is not always the case. The boss may stick to their guns and give the order to execute the plan as directed. Now the subordinate should go back again and assess the orders and plan even more granularly, looking at every possible way to mitigate risk, analyzing outcomes in even more detail, and building an even stronger case against the boss's plan. Once this is done, it is back to the boss again to present the findings. Now, with these even more detailed and well-documented concerns presented, which still show some bad results even with the implementation of some risk mitigation, the boss will hopefully be swayed. Seeing a high potential for mission failure presented in an inoffensive way, the boss decides on another method. This is good. But even that doesn't always work. Sometimes a boss digs in and will not change their mind. Is it time for mutiny? Is it time to draw a line in the sand? You could tell the boss, absolutely not. I will not do this your way. It might be time to say that, but it also still might not be. There are many variables to assess. First, let's observe what is at risk. Perhaps there is just a little bit of efficiency lost. If that is the case, it is not worth the fight. Maybe there's a little bit more substantial efficiency lost, but still nothing major. If that is the case, once again, it is not worth fighting over. But maybe there is some other, more significant risk. It may be worth going back again and really trying to explain exactly what that risk is and how it will negatively impact the mission. This idea continues, the subordinate weighing the risk involved and how impactful the final outcome will be. Eventually, the subordinate can get to a point where they are sure the outcome of the boss's plan is completely unacceptable. The subordinate knows that complying with the boss and executing as directed will have catastrophic impact on the team and the mission. But even then, the subordinate has to contemplate if outright refusal to obey is the best call. Here are some possible outcomes when the subordinate refuses to comply. One, the leader recognizes that the subordinate is extremely concerned about the plan. So concerned, they are putting their career at stake and risking possible punitive actions because it is actually really bad. This is the best possible outcome. The leader, awakened by the refusal of his or her subordinate to execute a plan, reconsiders the options and decides to execute a different way. Now the subordinate should rejoin the team throw their support behind the new plan, and go help the team execute. Two, the leader digs in even deeper and will not change the plan. Since the subordinate has refused to participate, the leader fires that subordinate and puts a new subordinate in place who has been handpicked for unquestioning obedience. For the boss, the problem is solved. But the team will absolutely suffer, since now the voice of reason has been replaced by one of the boss's yes-men. It will be the boss's plan 
and that is it. No one will have any choice or control. This is a horrible situation. To avoid it, consider the fact that since the boss is refusing to listen to suggestions about the plan, it is probable that the boss has a big ego and is likely to put a yes-man in to execute his or her vision without resistance. If this is a possible outcome, it must be weighed carefully. Three, if a subordinate draws a line in the sand and refuses to execute a plan or outright quits the position as protest, they instantly remove all influence of any kind over the boss. So while the subordinate has made a very loud and clear statement, once the statement has been made, there is nothing else they can do. They are not a factor in any further outcome. Four, if the subordinate tries every possible method to convince the boss that the plan is wrong and sees no way of changing the boss's mind, then perhaps the better option is for the subordinate to make one last statement of concern and then proceed to lead the team in the execution of the plan to the best of their ability. This way, the subordinate leader can at least do their utmost to mitigate the negative impacts of the poor plan, note the harmful results so they can be explained clearly to the boss, and continue to play the long game in building a relationship with the boss so they can convince the boss there is a better way to execute going forward. The inherent risk in this course of action is that, as Napoleon said, the subordinate is still culpable for the outcome. Whatever course of action is chosen when pushing back strongly against a boss, it must be considered very carefully, since some of those courses have catastrophic outcomes for the team, the mission, and the subordinate leader. Proceed with caution. Born or made? This is an age-old question. Are leaders born or made? The answer is both. Let's start by looking at what people are born with. Obviously, everyone is born with strengths and weaknesses in different areas. Physical attributes are obvious. Some people are taller, some people are shorter. Some are naturally stronger, some more flexible. Some are born with explosive, fast-twitch muscle, and others with high-endurance, slow-twitch muscle. Physical training can certainly improve the physical capabilities of any individual. Working out with weights makes people stronger. Running improves their stamina. Stretching improves flexibility. But people are born with and limited by their own genetic makeup. These characteristics and their limitations play out clearly in sports and physical competitions. We can try to reach our genetic potential and perhaps push slightly beyond that, but eventually we are confined by our DNA. People are also born with different cognitive capacities. Sure, with training, they can maximize their intellectual capabilities, but there will be a limit. No amount of studying can turn a person of average intelligence into Einstein. But learning, studying, and drilling can improve someone's ability to think. The more a person reads, the better they can contextualize things in the world. The more a person studies language, the better their vocabulary becomes. The more a person asks questions, practices figuring out answers, and trains their ability to think, the better they will actually be able to think. 
So, just as a person can improve their physical capabilities, a person can improve their intellectual competence until they reach the limits of their genomes. The same is true with leadership characteristics. There are certain traits a human being can be born with that are beneficial for leadership. Being articulate is one. The better a person can communicate their ideas in a simple, clear manner, the more effective a leader they will be. And some people are born more naturally articulate than others. The ability to analyze complex problems and break them down into simple, easy-to-understand concepts is also a natural ability that some people possess, and this is a great skill for a leader to be born with. When a leader has to attack an undertaking of any kind, being able to understand the undertaking in simple terms is critical, not only so the leader can communicate to the team about the nature of the undertaking, but also so the leader can identify a simple solution nested inside a sea of complexities. The more confidence and charisma a leader has, the better he or she will do as a leader. And charisma, while hard to quantify, is an identifiable trait that human beings have. And they have different amounts. Some people have an incredible amount of natural magnetism, and others are drawn to them. Some might struggle to even get a minuscule level of attention paid to them. Even a trait like being loud is a good leadership quality to have. If you are going to lead, people need to hear you. But if your voice is not loud, the team will not be able to hear your directions and therefore will not be able to execute. The ability to read people is very important. But it, too, doesn't come naturally to everyone. In fact, some people do a horrible job of interacting with others. They are socially awkward and don't pick up on other people's emotions and reactions. All leaders have strengths and weaknesses. Fortunately, they can improve. How? First, a leader can become more articulate. They can practice speaking study to expand their vocabulary, and read and write to practice and improve their ability to clarify and communicate their thoughts. In doing these things, they become more articulate over time. A leader can also get better at simplifying things. By detaching and thinking about problems more abstractly, by making simplification their goal, and by continually reprioritizing or removing things that are not really important, Over time and with practice, the leader will improve their ability to develop simpler solutions. Charisma might be hard for a leader to improve, but they can certainly make some progress. The leader can pay attention to their posture and countenance. As the leader gains experience, they also gain confidence, which helps their charisma. A leader can also focus on things like looking people in the eye when talking to them, listening intently to what others say, and speaking clearly with humble authority. The leader can make sure they project their voice so they are heard. All those little things add up to increased charisma. To improve their ability to read people, the leader can start to pay more attention to body language, facial expressions, and tone of voice. Once the leader is paying attention, they can figure out what a person's baseline of behavior is and then begin to identify when the person deviates from that baseline, which will help indicate the person's feelings or mood. 
So there are quantifiable ways for leaders to improve their natural leadership characteristics. But it would be unrealistic to think a leader can go from a low level in any category to an exceptional level, just as it would be unrealistic to turn a world champion marathon runner into an Olympic champion weightlifter. The genes just aren't there. So how can a leader become great if they lack the natural characteristics necessary to lead? The answer is simple. A good leader builds a great team that counterbalances their weaknesses. I saw this taking place when I was running tactical training for the SEAL teams. There was a task unit commander in charge of two SEAL platoons who didn't have a loud voice. He was smart and tactically savvy, and he seemed to be respected by his troops. But he had the vocal cords of a mouse. While it is certainly a benefit for any leader to be able to project their voice, it is absolutely critical for a combat leader to be able to make themselves heard. The reason is obvious. During a machine gun fight, it gets extremely loud. And yet, direction still has to be given in a loud and thunderous tone so the rest of the team can hear the call and then pass it on. Unfortunately, this was beyond the capability of this particular SEAL officer. I counseled him about it directly. Your men can't hear you. You need to get louder. I'm not sure I can, he told me. Well, you better, because right now, your weak voice is rendering you ineffective as a leader. I replied, being as blunt as I could, to try and get him to remedy the situation. I watched and listened to him during the next training exercise. There was no improvement. His team lagged behind because they could not hear his orders. After the training mission, I addressed it again with the officer. During the next mission, there was still no improvement. I started to wonder if this individual could actually be effective as a SEAL leader, and my suspicions drifted towards no. I was born with a naturally loud voice, and that voice had always served me well as a SEAL leader. I reflected on times when my loud voice was able to pierce through the noise of gunfire and explosions and be heard by my men. It was a critical capability. You might think the radios we use with the high-tech noise-canceling headsets would solve this problem, but it doesn't. During the chaos of a gunfight, people often can't hear their radios, and even if they can, they can't always pay attention to them. Commands are lost in the mayhem. But verbal commands are different. Every SEAL is trained since day one of the basic SEAL training course to stop shooting when they hear a command being yelled, look at the person who just yelled the command, repeat the command back to them, then look at the person next to them in the opposite direction, pass the word on to them, and wait for them to yell it back, ensuring they got the word. This does not happen when commands are passed on the radio. That is why commands and directions are so often lost on the radio. I really started to question the potential of this quiet SEAL officer and further addressed it with him. Look, I see that you understand tactics. I see that you are good at planning. I even see that you are making good tactical decisions. But none of that matters if your men can't hear you. You need to get louder, and you need to get louder now, or else you aren't going to make it. He was disappointed by my words, but not angry. I think he truly recognized his shortcoming and how badly it was impacting his entire task unit. Soon it was time for the next training mission to take place. Once again, I kept my eye on the quiet young task unit commander. As the mission unfolded, so did the chaos, the mayhem, and the noise. 
Automatic weapons were ripping off thousands of rounds of belt-fed blanks. Simulated artillery grenades were whining and exploding. It became very hard to hear, but a call needed to be made. The team needed to enter, clear a building, and set security, a maneuver we call strong point. It was the obvious decision. I eyed the task unit commander. He looked like he knew what to do, but could he bark loudly enough to make everyone hear him so they could execute? Just as I started to wonder, I watched him tell one of his guys, whom I'll call Bill, tell everyone to strong point that building right there and set security. I saw the task unit commander's brilliance immediately. Bill was the biggest loudmouth in the entire task unit. As soon as he heard the orders from his boss, Bill thundered out, All right, everyone, strong point that building right there and set security. Just as they had been trained, when people heard that call, they passed the word to the seal next to them and then to the next. Soon, all the task unit members had not only heard the call, they were actually executing it, taking down the building and setting security. It was awesome to watch. It proved verbal commands worked, but it also proved that I was wrong. The SEAL officer was absolutely capable of leading men in combat. He just needed to figure out how to utilize the people on his team to cover for his weakness. And that is what a good leader does, finds other people to bring onto the team who compensate for his or her shortfalls. By doing that, even the biggest deficits in leadership traits can be overcome. Combine that with hard work to try to improve on areas of weakness, and soon any person can drastically improve their ability to lead. Well, I should say almost anyone. Because there is one type of person who can never become a good leader. A person who lacks humility. People who lack humility cannot improve because they don't acknowledge their own weaknesses. They don't work to improve them, and they won't bring someone onto the team to offset their shortfalls. This person will never improve. Beware. But everyone else can get better. And while you might not be able to transform an awful leader into an excellent one, you can certainly make a bad leader into a better one and a good leader into an outstanding one, regardless of how they were born. Leadership and Manipulation Leadership and manipulation are closely related, but one is deemed to be bad and the other is considered good. They are closely related because they are both trying to do the same thing. The aim of both leadership and manipulation is to get people to do what you want them to do. The highest form of both leadership and manipulation is to get people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. Both leaders and manipulators use many of the same techniques. They both build relationships, leverage their influence, and maneuver politically to attain the outcome they desire. Both leaders and manipulators capitalize on others' egos, personal agendas, and individual strengths and weaknesses to achieve their own preferred outcome. But while there are many similarities between leaders and manipulators, there is one glaring difference. Manipulators are trying to get people to do things that will benefit the manipulator, while leaders are trying to get people to do things that will benefit the team and the people themselves. 
This difference is stark. The manipulator is trying to get a promotion or a better position for themselves. The manipulator is trying to set themselves up to look good in the eyes of their boss. The manipulator has one ultimate priority in every move they make. That priority is the manipulator. But the leader puts themselves at the bottom of the priority list. The good of the mission and the good of the team outweigh any personal concern a true leader has for themselves. Both of these attitudes eventually shine through and reveal themselves. Manipulators might fool some of the people some of the time, but they won't fool all the people all the time. True leaders are the same. While they might not always get the credit they deserve because they deflect it to the other team members, over time, they will absolutely be recognized, admired, and likely promoted for their leadership. This does not mean that the leader always triumphs over the manipulator in the immediate situation. Sometimes a manipulator plays a good hand, gets himself or herself noticed, and winds up winning. But the win will be short-term. Sacrificing others for yourself never pans out in the long term. People eventually take stock of the fact that you are not looking out for the good of the team, but instead you are looking out for yourself. When people notice that, they will not follow you for long. The same thing happens to a good leader. Their true goals are eventually revealed. When a good leader makes sacrifices and puts other people and the mission ahead of themselves, eventually that will be recognized and people will want to follow that leader. Good leaders do the right things for the right reasons. They work hard, support the team, and lead solid execution. In the long run, the reputation of a true leader far outweighs the glory-seeking manipulator. And in the end, the good leader, looking out for the mission and the team, will win. Subordinate your ego. At Echelon Front, our leadership consultancy, Leif and I began working with a company that was growing quickly and making a lot of money. They recognized that they needed to get ahead of the growth by training junior leaders to be ready to step up and take greater responsibility. This initial trip was to be an assessment where Leif and I would interview people at every level of leadership, learn more about their business, and start to develop a plan to train the junior leaders. The first day, we met with the senior executives from the company. I was very impressed with them all. The COO was smart and capable. The CFO was out of central casting, astute, and detail-oriented. The CTO, the HR lead, and the rest of the senior executive leaders were all solid. Then I met the CEO. I had done my research, and on paper, he appeared to be the best of the best. He was an NCAA college athlete. He went on to an Ivy League school for his MBA. He was young, not even in his mid-30s yet, but was already running a $100 million company. He was also physically impressive. He was at least six foot five and had to be 250 pounds of muscle. But it wasn't only his physical size that was big. As soon as we shook hands, I realized his ego was also massive. The look on his face screamed, I'm better than you are. And I could almost feel him bowing out his chest like a teenage boy trying to act tough. I felt an immediate tension from him borderline smugness as he looked down his nose at me. 
No big deal, I thought, as I looked at him. I had dealt with many big egos both in the military and in the corporate world. But I soon realized that this case would be particularly challenging. Every comment he made was haughty and arrogant. Anything I said was greeted with a superior look of, I already knew that. I thought he would open up to some of my ideas as the day went on, but he didn't. His conceit and condescension hit me like a baseball bat with almost every word he spoke. We finished out the day with the senior executives, and the next day we met with some of the mid-level managers and frontline leaders. I dug around a little bit as we talked to them looking for some dirt on the CEO to see what they thought of his overly prideful attitude. But none of them made any statements against him. In fact, most said they liked him and respected him. He's got them all fooled, I thought. Once we wrapped up, we departed the company and began to formulate our own plan for the next steps. As I thought about the discrepancy between the CEO's attitude and his team's assessment of him, I began to think he was probably just having a bad day when we met. Perhaps something made him mad, a missed deadline or a failing project, and that anger just seeped over into his attitude toward me. That had to have been the case, I thought. Especially because I pride myself on being able to get along with anyone, and I certainly couldn't see why he had any legitimate reason to treat me with such an egotistical attitude. I figured the next time we went out to work with him, he would step down from his high horse and treat me with some respect. I was wrong. Again, everything was great with the rest of the senior leaders when we showed up to begin the leadership training for the team. They were happy to see us and excited to start the program. Except for him. Even when we shook hands, I could feel his conceited self-importance. What the hell is wrong with this guy, I wondered. As I kicked off the first training session, his attitude didn't budge. As I explained leadership principles, he listened, but at the same time, he tried not to seem too interested. He looked at his phone, whispered to a few people, even got up and walked out for a few minutes as if everything he was doing was infinitely more important than the leadership lessons I was teaching. When I was done with the first session, Leif took over for the second session. I sat there looking at this egomaniacal jerk wondering how he ended up that way and why he couldn't see how much of a pompous blowhard he was. I tried to figure out how to handle this problem that he had. How could he be so egotistical? How could he not see his own arrogance? Then I thought a little deeper. How was it that his fellow executives didn't seem bothered by his ego? How was it that his frontline leaders didn't see the same conceit and self-importance that I saw? Wait, I thought. Is it possible that the problem is me? It hit me like a bolt of lightning. Could it be my ego causing this problem? Was there a chance that my fragile self-image could be threatened by this beast of a human being who is not only physically gifted in size, strength, and athletic ability, but was also extremely smart, a bold leader, and was running a $100 million company all at the age of 32? Was there a chance that my ego was intimidated by all this and that I was the one who was acting like an idiot? Of course. Now that I saw what was happening, it was obvious our two massive egos were bumping into each other and causing friction. During the next break, I approached him and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? He gave me a smirk and then sneered, sure, you're going to give me some coaching? With utter contempt in his voice when he said the word coaching. I motioned outside with my head and walked toward the door of the classroom. 
he followed me. We walked down the hallway to get out of earshot of the rest of the team. I stopped, turned around, and studied his face. He looked like I had just asked him to step outside for a fight. Well, he finally said. I smiled. Well, I replied, I just wanted to give you a quick assessment of everything I've seen so far. Your leaders are solid. Your company has great morale, and they understand the mission here. His face changed slightly. He looked a little disarmed. This was not what he was expecting. But the most impressive thing I've seen here so far, I continued, is you. You are smart. You have a great presence. Everyone here really understands your vision. It's obvious that everything great I see at this company is a reflection of your leadership, which is outstanding. And it's no surprise. You played ball in college. You have the Ivy League education. You stay in great shape. And you built this powerful company. It is impressive to say the least. I have nothing but respect for you, what you've done, and what you are going to do. By the time I finished that last sentence, his face had completely changed. The arrogance disappeared and was replaced with a humble, almost bashful face. No way, he blurted out. I'm just a business guy. You are the one who deserves respect. You spent your whole life in the SEAL teams. You rose up through the ranks. You led men in combat in an incredibly hard environment. That is what deserves respect. We both laughed as the tension between our egos disappeared. Our relationship turned 180 degrees in a matter of seconds. We walked back to the classroom, and he was fully engaged in everything I said about business, leadership, and life. He even began chiming in and relating his own experiences to support the principles I was touting. The problem was solved. How had I done it? Simple. As soon as I was able to detach and recognize that this was a clash of egos, all I had to do was humble myself for a minute. I had to subordinate my own ego to allow the tension to break. Once I did that, the problem was solved. Ego is like reactive armor. The harder you push against it, the more it pushes back. If I had confronted the CEO about his attitude and told him he had a big ego, he would have dug in even deeper. So I did the opposite. I disarmed his ego by subduing my own. Now you might be afraid that if you subordinate your ego, you will get trampled. But that normally doesn't happen because subordinating your ego is actually the ultimate form of self-confidence. That level of confidence earns respect. So while the initial thought or feeling might be that you backed down, you have actually shown that you have the strength and confidence to give the other person credit. And they will recognize and respect that confidence either consciously or subconsciously. And that is the truth. To put your ego in check, to subordinate your ego, you must have incredible confidence. If you find you cannot put your ego in check because you're afraid it might make you look weak, then guess what? You are weak. Don't be weak. Subordinate your ego, build relationships, and win the long game. Leaders tell the truth. Truth and honesty are perhaps the most essential of leadership qualities. Tell the truth to your people. Tell the truth to your boss. Tell the truth to your peers. And of course, tell the truth to yourself. This is no easy task. And telling the truth does not give a leader, subordinate, or peer 
the right to be a jerk or attack people. No, telling the truth must be done with tact and sensitivity. Of course, some truths are easy to speak. We are winning. You're doing an amazing job. Our competitors don't stand a chance. Who wouldn't want to speak these truths? But there are harder truths that are more difficult to tell. We are losing. Your performance is substandard. The enemy is gaining ground on us. Those truths hurt as much to say as they do to hear. That is why so many people, especially leaders, fail to deliver the hard truth. But leaders must speak the truth. To do that, a leader must first know his or her people and communicate often with them. That way, if a leader has bad news to tell the team members, it isn't the first time he or she is speaking to them. Delivering bad news shouldn't be the one time in the last four months the leaders come down to the front lines to speak to the troops. No, there should be a consistent, well-established relationship with the troops so they know and understand the leader and the leader knows and understands the troops. The more communication there is with subordinates, the easier it should be to communicate with them, even if the things being communicated are negative. Additionally, when there is a solid relationship, it allows subordinates to deliver bad news, to speak the truth up the chain of command too. If you communicate often, and by communicate, I mean all forms of communication, including meetings, phone calls, emails, texts, videos, and any other available method, then the bad news will sting less. For instance, let's say a company loses 5% market share in one month, and the CEO does not share that with anyone in hopes that they gain the market share back. If they do gain the market share back, then all is good. But if they lose another 5% market share, now totaling 10% market share, that is much harder to explain. So hard, in fact, that some bosses might not want to share it. Instead, they cross their fingers and hope to recover the next month. Once again, if the company begins to recover market share and stays on a positive trajectory, perhaps everything will turn out all right. But if they don't, the CEO can look up in three months or six months or a year with 50% of their market share gone. Then what? Now telling the truth becomes very hard because the truth is the company has lost 50% of its market share and is going to have to cut marketing, training, and personnel to survive. Not good. But if the CEO had told the truth earlier and done it in a positive way, things could very well have been different. If he or she had told the troops that market share had gone down 5%, the troops could have realized that they needed to push a little harder. The frontline personnel and the leaders could have redoubled their efforts and done more to make things happen. They could have recovered market share and put the company on a new path to success. But failing to tell the truth early and often makes that type of recovery impossible. On top of that, the troops will find out when the truth isn't told. They will see the declining numbers. Someone in accounting will tell someone in operations or sales about declining revenue. That bit of reality, injected into the void of information on the front lines, will result in rumors about the impending catastrophe. This rumor mill will compound and eventually become a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. This is gossip and groupthink. If the frontline troops aren't sure why something is happening, they will make up their own reasons. 
and the reasons they come up with will likely be much worse than reality. Why would the boss hide the truth unless it was a total disaster? How do you combat this vicious cycle? Kill the rumors by telling the truth. Perhaps the worst result of a leader not telling the team members the truth is that they simply will not trust the leader anymore. They will not believe what the leader says. They will not believe in the leader's plan. And they will not believe in the leader's vision. When the team members do not believe in the leader's words, plan, or vision, the team and the leader will fail. Despite this, there are many occasions where people don't tell the truth. Sometimes they think there is a legitimate reason not to tell the truth. In the military, perhaps some information is compartmentalized classified material. In the civilian sector, maybe legal action forbids the sharing of certain information. When those situations occur, the answer is simple. Tell the truth. Not the truth that is classified and therefore illegal to reveal, but the truth about why the truth can't be told. I'm sorry, but that is actually classified and compartmentalized information that I am not allowed to discuss. Or, listen, I would like to share that information with you, but due to the legal situation, I cannot disclose it right now. A leader also has to tell the truth when a mistake is made, which is inherent in taking extreme ownership of it. The owner must tell the truth about what happened, what went wrong, what mistakes they made, and how they're going to fix them. But telling the truth does not mean a leader can use the truth as an excuse to be overly critical or offensive. This is most easily mitigated by having a relationship with and caring about members of the team. Know who they are. Know what they stand for. Know what drives them. If a leader lacks that knowledge, he or she will not be able to communicate effectively with the team, especially when it comes to delivering critique points or harsh truths. If you have a harsh truth to deliver to the team, it is best to just deliver it. Of course, explain the circumstances around it, but don't make any excuses or hold anything back. Just tell the truth and explain why. Have to terminate some people? Explain why that is necessary for the good of the team. Need to put in some extra hours that no one wants to? Explain the reason why it's important. And then lead from the front, especially when things are bad. You take the pay cut. You take the first shift of overtime work. As a leader, do the hard things. Don't leave it to the troops. The same is true when it comes to communicating with individuals. Don't wait to have hard conversations. They will only get harder. Whether it is a subordinate, a superior, a peer, or a client, waiting to discuss a difficult issue will not make the issue any less difficult. Attack it. But remember... Even with hard truths in the form of individual criticism, truth is not an excuse to show bad tact. In fact, hard truths require more tact. If you have a good relationship with your subordinate and they know you care about them, hard truths should be similar to natural conversations you already have. One common technique that gets discussed is to sandwich negative criticism between two positive points. Your team has hit their numbers three months straight, which is great to see. But your churn rate with employees is not good. You're losing too many people. This is offset by the fact that they are definitely performing well while they're here. This technique is an attempt to build a shortcut around having 
actual relationships with your direct reports. You shouldn't have to manufacture good points to wrap around bad points. If a leader has a good relationship with his or her subordinates, this won't be necessary. That being said, a good relationship with subordinates does not mean the subordinate is magically open to harsh criticism. It doesn't work that way. The vast majority of the population doesn't like criticism, no matter who it comes from. So most criticism is best delivered indirectly with the minimal amount of negativity needed to get the desired change. And there's more on that in the section on how to deliver criticism. Study. Leaders are never good enough. A leader must be constantly improving and learning since, in any leadership job, new and unexpected challenges arise all the time. And, as one continues to lead, the number of people being led increases. Projects multiply in number and scope, and the overall strategic impact of the missions being led also expands. Leadership in any chosen profession is just that, a profession. Being a leader is your life. Do everything humanly possible to know and understand everything there is about your profession and being a leader in that profession. Strive every day to learn and become a better leader. There are many components for learning to lead. One of the most important is to try to see everything through the lens of leadership. In any group of people, leadership is occurring. Pay attention to that. Observe what works and what doesn't. Note the successful and unsuccessful techniques leaders use, how they talk, words they use, interactions they carry out. Think about how you can apply these techniques. Apply the leadership lens to things you read. Almost every story has a component of leadership embedded in it. A book or article does not have to be about leadership to be about leadership. Pay attention to that. How does the leader act? What does the leader say? How do the leader's superiors and subordinates react? Learning from history through books is a great way to gain experience without having to live through it. But this only works if you read with the correct level of engagement to understand the actions, emotions, and human nature inside the words themselves. Also, learn to pay attention to the small things. We often overlook the nuances of situations and then wonder why things unfolded the way they did. Pay attention. Little things matter. They matter less, but they matter. Think about the fundamental principles of leadership and overlay them onto everything you see to expand your thinking. Cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, decentralized command, extreme ownership, the dichotomy of leadership. If you look for these principles, you will see them. If you see them, you will understand them better. The better you understand them, the better you can implement them. The better you can implement them, the more you can look for them, and this cycle continues forever. None of this happens without humility. If a leader thinks they have achieved the pinnacle of leadership expertise, they are already going in the wrong direction, stagnant in their skill set, and, worst of all, unconsciously giving off the stink of arrogance. Don't let this happen. Stay humble and always learn. Section 2. Core Tenets Be capable 
and ask for help. A leader must know and understand the jobs, skills, and equipment used by the people below him or her in the chain of command. This isn't to say a leader needs to be an expert in everything. That is impossible. A platoon commander does not know as much about shooting as his snipers do. He can't understand the various radios as well as his radioman does. He will not know the detail of routes to and from a target like the point man will. On a construction site, the foreman won't be able to operate equipment with the same efficiency as those who operate that equipment all day long. He won't be able to lay block as well as the masons or tie rebar like an iron worker. In the manufacturing business, a plant manager might not be able to run each machine or handle every task on the line. But in all these cases, the leader must at least be familiar with what goes on below him in the chain of command. What should a leader do if he doesn't know or understand a skill or a job that plays a role in the accomplishment of the mission? Simple. Ask. That's right, go and ask. And not just for an explanation. Ask to learn and actually do. Sight in that sniper weapon. Program that radio. Lay some block. Run that piece of equipment for a little while. Get familiar and then actually practice the task. Unfortunately, most people avoid this process because they fear they will look stupid. They think their subordinates will lose respect for them. But the opposite is true. This is another area where ego can be a real impediment to success. Some leaders feel it is a weakness to ask for help. That couldn't be further from the truth. Subordinates will actually respect the leader more if they come and try to learn and perform the task. What subordinates don't respect is a leader who tries to appear to know everything. I know this from experience. When I was a junior ranking SEAL, I was always impressed by a boss who would come and truly show interest in what we were doing on the front lines. I was even more impressed if they asked questions and wanted to really understand my perspective. And I would be completely impressed if the leader physically tried to do what I was doing, program a radio, shoot an advanced weapon system, or build a demolition charge. If you need help with something, ask for it. Subordinates understand that their leaders might not know everything. Put your ego in check and ask for help. You will do a better job and you will gain respect from your team. Stepping down and learning frontline skills also shows your humility. It proves you aren't above what the frontline troops are doing and it shows you know their job is hard. But remember, being a leader who is not required to be able to perform tasks assigned to the front line is not an excuse for being ignorant or unprepared. If you're going down to the front lines, at least be familiar with what those on the front lines do. Look at the manuals so you are aware of the equipment they are using. Study what you can so you don't look completely lost. This goes for leaders at every level. It is understandable that a leader might not know exactly how to operate a piece of gear or equipment, but it is inexcusable not to know what it is, or at least what it is used for. Complete ignorance of what is happening on the front lines makes you appear out of touch, and yes, the troops will lose respect for you. If that happens and you are caught unprepared, step away, dive in, learn what you can, then come back for more.
And speaking of coming back for more, just because you have gone down and done something once doesn't mean you are good to go. Always go back for more. Keep learning and getting better. I told the CEO of an equipment manufacturer that he should go and build a product from beginning to end at least once a month so he was always in touch with the process. That way, he would understand the challenges his frontline workers experienced firsthand. It also meant he had the knowledge to call someone out if they were trying to pull the wool over his eyes. That is worth its weight in gold. Lastly, when you get down in the dirt with the frontline troops, you get to know them. You build relationships. And when you have relationships with the frontline troops, they actually tell you what is going on. They give you information. They tell you what is working and what isn't. That is powerful knowledge to have. Of course, you can't spend all your time with the frontline troops. You have to balance that. But make sure you spend enough time with them and make sure you know what they do. Get down with the frontline troops, learn what you can from them, know and understand their part of the mission, and earn their respect as a leader and as a person. Building trust and relationships. Relationships up and down the chain of command are the foundation of a team. If two people trust each other, they have a relationship. If there is no trust, there is no relationship. So relationships are built on trust. Teams are built on relationships. If there aren't relationships between people, there is no team, just a group of random people. We need to build relationships to form a team. And we need to build trust to build relationships. So the question is, how can we build trust, relationships, and in the end, our team? The most obvious part of building trust and thereby building a relationship is honesty, which is covered in the section, Leaders Tell the Truth. But while telling the truth is the foundation, there are other tools to help build trust. Here are some strategic methods to build trust up and down. Down the chain. To build trust and relationships down the chain of command, you have to give trust. What does that mean? If I want my subordinates to trust me, I need to give them trust. So, for instance, I will allow and trust them to run a mission. I will allow and trust them to make a decision. I will allow and trust them to work through a problem without my oversight. Of course, there is inherent risk when I allow my subordinates to run a mission, make a decision, or work through a problem. The risk is that they might make a bad decision, fail to solve a problem, or fail the mission. That is why, as a leader, I will start to build trust with small, incremental steps. The first mission I trust a subordinate to run will not be a major real-world operation with strategic consequences. Instead, it will be a simple training operation with nothing at stake but ego and pride. I would not allow a decision to be made that might have significant negative impact if my subordinate makes the wrong call. Instead, I would select a decision for the subordinate to make that would cause little trouble if the wrong decision were made. It is the same for allowing a subordinate to solve a problem. I wouldn't give them a problem to solve where failure to solve the problem would result in a broader catastrophe. Instead, 
I would give my subordinate a problem that would be easy to recover from should a solution not be found in a timely manner. In each case, if my subordinate were successful, my trust would increase. Also, since I gave the subordinate leeway to make the decision, their trust in me would increase. They would begin to trust that I gave good guidance, trust that I allow them room to work without micromanaging them, and trust that I would let them solve problems and figure things out for themselves. When one of my subordinates was successful in these tasks, I would begin looking for a slightly bigger mission for them to run, a little bigger decision for them to make, and an even bigger problem for them to solve. This process would repeat over and over again, gradually and incrementally increasing the trust between us. If a subordinate failed in carrying out a mission or making the right decision or solving a problem, I wouldn't drop the hammer of punishment on them. I wouldn't berate or belittle them. Instead, I would look at their mistake as an opportunity to teach them, to counsel them, to mentor them. If I thought they understood, I would give them another mission, decision, or problem to deal with. Perhaps I would give them just a little more guidance and oversight this time to make sure they did a better job. Once they were successful, I would follow the same procedure above, gradually increasing the size and magnitude of the mission, decision, or problem, continuing to increase the trust between us. As time goes on, the missions, decisions, and problems become more difficult, and the subordinates will make mistakes. Again, these are simply learning opportunities that make the subordinate better. As the risk in these situations escalates, you can still let them lead but just provide more oversight to make sure they don't make a mistake that could cause an unacceptable loss. You micromanage them a little bit. You make corrections for them as they get slightly off track to ensure there isn't catastrophic failure. And yet, they still learn from those little adjustments. What starts off as micromanagement becomes more and more hands-off. The more trust that is built, the more hands-off the leader can be. Eventually, the subordinate will have successfully carried out enough missions, decisions, and problem-solving and learned enough along the way that full trust is achieved. Up the chain. We also have to develop trust and build relationships with our superiors. Once again, the process starts with telling the truth. The mistake that often gets made here is that subordinates like to tell their bosses what they think their bosses want to hear. Whether it is telling the boss, morale is great with the troops, when it isn't. Or, we are heading in the right direction and we will definitely make our sales numbers. Or even, we have all the support that we need. These assertions can cause problems if they aren't the truth. All these statements might make the boss feel good in the short term, but in the long term, they are going to come back and hurt the mission, the team, and ultimately, the boss. When it comes back and hurts the boss, the boss will remember it was you who fed them the incorrect information, and their trust in you will obviously be diminished. So you have to tell the truth. But remember, this does not give you permission to complain. The truth might be that your team has been working hard and a break would be nice. That isn't worth telling the boss, who likely doesn't need to hear that. But if the team members are extremely fatigued and truly need some rest before they make a significant mistake, that is worth telling the boss. 
Make sure you distinguish between telling the boss the truth about things the boss needs to know and complaining about every little thing that goes on. As mentioned in earlier sections, a couple of other things that are important in building trust are simply performing well and being tactful when you push back against the boss. All these strategies must be employed to build trust. Without trust, leadership falls apart. Trust and decentralized command. One of the most critical requirements for trust is the use of decentralized command. Trust must be well-established because there are times when the only thing holding a team together up and down the chain of command is trust. There are dynamic situations when there is not time for a leader to explain why he or she needs the job done. Instead, the leader just needs the subordinate to execute immediately. This seems contrary to everything I teach, not only about decentralized command, but about leadership in general. Over and over again, I tell people not to bark orders, not to impose plans on their subordinates, and to make sure that everyone understands not just what you want them to do, but more important, why they need to do it. Once they understand why they are doing what they are doing, they can take ownership and carry out the task with the knowledge and clarity to make adjustments as needed. On top of that, I always encourage questions from subordinates. If they don't understand why they are doing something, they need to ask. If subordinates disagree with a plan or idea, they need to raise their concerns up the chain of command. This kind of resistance to and push back against the boss will create a better result in the end. After all, the leader has a different view of the situation from that of the troops on the front line, so the leader might not see what the subordinates see. A leader can easily make bad decisions because of their lack of perspective. Therefore, it is essential that there be open dialogue between subordinates and the leader so the situation can be understood and different perspectives can be seen up and down the chain of command. With open dialogue, the best possible plan can be formulated. But what about a time-sensitive situation in which a decision must be made quickly? Let's say I am a SEAL platoon commander in an urban combat situation and my platoon is attacked with heavy machine gun fire while crossing a road. Several of my platoon members are pinned down behind some vehicles on the street. I assess the situation and quickly determine that we need to put down suppressive fire from an elevated position, which will allow the pinned down platoon members to maneuver out of the street. I analyze the layout of the platoon and recognize that squad two is in the best position to make that happen. So I look at the second squad leader, we'll call him Fred, and bark, Fred, get your squad to that building on the corner, get to the roof, and start putting down suppressive fire. At this point, Fred doesn't say, well, you know, boss, can you give me some background as to why you want that done? I'm thinking there's some other possible solutions to this problem that we should explore. No, that would be ridiculous. He knows the situation is critical. He knows this is no time to debate. And most important, he trusts me. We've been working together for months. I've made plenty of decisions that he questioned, and when he did question them, I was open to his questions. And we came to conclusions that we both agreed on. Fred knows that I always want him to understand why he is doing what he is doing. I was always more than willing to take the time to explain and discuss 
the why in great detail whenever I could. But Fred also knows now is not the time for discussion, explanation, or a question and answer session. Now is the time for action. Now is the time for trust. So Fred yells back, got it, and goes into action and executes the plan. That is the way it works. But it doesn't work that way every time. Because there's a chance that when I bark an order at Fred, he will look back at me and yell, negative. That's right. My subordinate, who knows me and trusts me and knows that we are in a critical situation, might look back at me and scream, negative. He is not going to do what I need him to do. Why is that? Has he lost confidence and trust in me? Does he feel he doesn't need to listen? No, the answer is simple. Fred sees something that I don't see. Perhaps he sees an enemy improvised explosive device outside the building. Maybe he sees enemy personnel that I can't see. It could be any number of things, but for some reason, Fred realizes he cannot carry out my order. This is, once again, where trust plays a huge role in an effective team. Not only did he have to trust me when I first gave him the order to go to the building, but now that he has said negative to me, I have to trust him. I have to trust that he's seen something that I don't see. I have to trust that he would do everything to carry out my order if he could, but he can't. Now, I have to adjust. Instead of telling him what to do, I actually take a step back and tell him why I need him to do it. We need cover fire from an elevated position so we can maneuver, I tell him. At this point, Fred knows why I need what I need, so he comes up with a way to make that happen. He sees a building adjacent to the one I wanted him to take and points to it, shouting, Roger that, I'm going to move my squad into that building there and we'll get on the roof to provide cover fire. Go, I reply. With that, he executes. He was able to execute. We were able to execute not only because of decentralized command and his understanding of the why, but also because of the relationships we had built through trust up and down the chain of command. That is leadership. Earning influence and respect. Just as a leader must build trust and relationships up and down the chain of command, a leader must also earn influence and respect. Too often, leaders think they deserve to be respected because of their rank or experience. Similarly, they think their position of authority equates to influence. And they are right to an extent. When a leader is in a position of senior rank, there is some respect and influence that is inherent in that rank. Generally, a subordinate looks to a superior and expects that their superior's training and experience will give the superior the ability to make good decisions and lead the team in the right direction. Rank and position do carry some level of respect and influence. But such respect and influence are extremely limited. The leader needs to build upon that initial platform and increase the respect and influence they receive from the troops as much as possible. How is that done? 
Similar to building trust, to build respect and influence, you have to give respect and influence. Treat people with respect. What does that mean? Allow them to give their opinion. Listen to them. Don't interrupt them. Don't disparage the importance of their job or position. Share the burden of hard tasks. The same is true for influence. If you want to have influence over others, you need to allow them to have influence over you. That means when you listen to them, you actually listen. You consider their recommendations, and whenever possible, you incorporate their thoughts and ideas into whatever you are trying to accomplish. You keep an open mind. The more you respect people and allow people to influence you, the more respect you will gain and the more influence you will have over them. Extreme ownership of everything. One of the most important tenets of leadership I adhered to as a leader in my military career was the idea of extreme ownership. It meant that when something went wrong, as the leader, it was my fault. If there was a failure of some kind up or down the chain of command, then I took responsibility for it. I wrote about this in the first chapter of my first book, Extreme Ownership. The idea of extreme ownership has struck a chord with people, and it has been incredibly effective in helping those in all kinds of leadership positions, leading all kinds of teams in all kinds of industries, businesses, and professions. Leaders found that when they took ownership of everything in their world, they saw other members of their teams, both up and down the chain of command, taking ownership as well. When people take ownership of their jobs and their mission, the jobs get done and the mission gets accomplished. When there are problems and people take ownership of those problems, the problems get solved. While extreme ownership might seem like a fairly simple concept to understand, it can be difficult to fully comprehend what it really means. What it really means is that the leader is responsible for everything. Absolutely everything. It can be hard to fully understand because there are times when a subordinate does something that the boss feels they cannot control and cannot possibly be responsible for. A subordinate might make a mistake or take an action that is completely unexpected. How can that be the leader's fault? I like to use the example of a young machine gunner in a SEAL platoon to exemplify how a leader truly is responsible for everything that happens. A SEAL machine gunner plays a key role in a SEAL platoon. As the name implies, he carries a machine gun, a heavy, belt-fed weapon capable of firing over 700 rounds per minute. The machine gun's ability to lay down such massive firepower makes it critical to a SEAL platoon or squad because it is the main weapon that puts down suppressive fire on the enemy. It keeps the enemy's heads down, allowing the rest of the SEALs to maneuver. The machine gun provides the main source of cover in the fundamental tactic of cover and move, the first law of combat. Of course, the machine gun doesn't operate itself. It is worthless without the machine gunner. The machine gunner carries the weapon and its ammunition, maintains the weapon, loads and fires the weapon. Those are the mechanics of the job, but a machine gunner must also be aware of how to best employ his weapon. He must understand how to get in a good position from which to best engage the enemy and provide cover for his team. 
he must also understand the terrain he is in and see how it can be used to his advantage and to the advantage of the platoon and how the enemy can also use terrain to their advantage if allowed to do so. The machine gunner must also understand his field of fire. Field of fire is the area of the battlefield a SEAL is responsible for, whether a street, a hallway, valley, or cardinal direction. In that area, he must locate and engage the enemy. But field of fire is equally important in its limitations. Outside one's field of fire, there might be innocent civilians or other friendly forces, or perhaps even your own SEALs. Bluntly stated, staying within your field of fire prevents you from shooting your own people. So the machine gunner can have a lot on his mind. But because his job is to shoot, there generally isn't much leadership required from him. Machine gunners are almost always part of a small fire team of four to six people, which is led by a fire team leader. With the lack of leadership opportunities, being a machine gunner is a job that is generally held by relatively inexperienced new guys who are in their first or maybe second platoons. Because of the size of the machine gun, it is often referred to as the pig, which makes the machine gunner a pig gunner. Also, because of the size of the pig gun, it usually requires a seal who is slightly larger to carry it. While it is not always true, it is common for new guys to be assigned as pig gunners if they are large-framed, strong individuals. There is also an ongoing, stereotypical joke in the SEAL teams that pig gunners, being big, strong new guys, aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Any new guy that does something dumb will be told he will make a good pig gunner. When a briefing is completed, it would not be uncommon for the platoon chief to ask, do you pig gunners understand? This is why the stereotypical pig gunner makes a perfect example of extreme ownership, because the stereotypical pig gunner is going to make mistakes. And they are a very easy target for blame. I heard it on a fairly regular basis from young SEAL leaders on training operations that I ran. These young leaders didn't yet fully understand their roles and the concept of extreme ownership. The training operations I ran were very complex and stressful combat simulations. We had a large budget for training and we utilized it to replicate the chaos and mayhem of combat to the best of our ability. We hired Hollywood set designers to make our training areas look like cities or villages in Iraq or Afghanistan. We used role players to mimic the actions of both enemy combatants and friendly civilians and we simulated weapons with paintball or other high-end paint marking rounds or with a multi-million dollar laser tag system. This simulated combat zone not only taught tactics, it was the ultimate leadership laboratory. And this is where I would see young SEAL leaders reveal that they didn't understand what extreme ownership really meant. Let's say a young pig gunner shot his weapon in the wrong direction outside his field of fire. When I would ask the pig gunner's leader what had gone wrong, it was very easy for him to say, well, the pig gunner made a mistake. He shot in the wrong direction. Whose fault is that, I would ask. Well, the gunner aimed the weapon. He pulled the trigger. It's his fault, the young leader would say. Actually, I would explain, it is your fault. How could it be my fault? He's the one that shot the weapon, the young leader would object. This was a pretty common response, but it was also wrong. You see, if a pig gunner makes a mistake, 
it means he hasn't been trained properly. The leader is responsible for training the gunner. If the gunner shoots in the wrong direction, it means he hasn't been briefed so he fully understands his field of fire. The leader is responsible for briefing the gunner. And yes, it could mean that the pig gunner is completely incompetent in understanding his task and knowing his field of fire. If that is the case, it is the gunner's responsibility to identify that shortfall and either train the gunner so he does understand, remove the gunner from his position and place him into a job he is capable of, or, as a last resort, fire the gunner from the team if he cannot do his job properly. So regardless of the reason the gunner failed, it is the leader's fault. A leader is responsible for everything a person on his or her team does. I even felt like this when one of my guys would get in trouble off base. If one of the SEALs who worked for me went out in town and drank too much and got in a fight, I always thought, where did I mess up? How did I fail to make that individual realize the consequences of his actions? Why didn't I know he was headed for trouble and keep him from going out? Taking extreme ownership means that leaders are responsible for every action the people on their team make. It is as simple as that. There are some things that occur that are beyond the control of the leader, but they are far fewer than most people think. One great example of that is the weather. Everyone knows we can't control the weather, so if a mission has to be canceled because the weather is too bad for the helicopters to fly the assault team to the target, that obviously can't be the leader's fault. After all, the leader can't control the weather. Wrong. While the leader can't control the weather, he can certainly put contingency plans in place in case there is bad weather. There could have been a backup plan using ground vehicles to get to the target. The leader could have forward staged closer to the target so helicopters weren't required. He could have even come up with a contingency timeline that kept all assets available if the weather turned bad so the mission could be delayed rather than canceled. So while the leader can't control the weather, he can certainly plan to deal with it. This means there are no buts to taking extreme ownership. It applies to everything. And the moment a leader decides he is going to allow excuses, it opens up the door to shift blame onto others. That leads to failures. Preemptive ownership. When a leader knows they cannot blame anyone or anything else, they will implement what I call preemptive ownership. They will take ownership of things to prevent problems from unfolding in the first place. The leader who knows he can't blame his machine gunner when the machine gunner makes a mistake is going to take preemptive ownership and focus on training that machine gunner and ensuring he understands the plan and his part in it. The leader who knows bad weather is no excuse not to execute a mission will take preemptive ownership to ensure there are layers of contingency plans in the event the weather takes a bad turn. The same is true for any team. If the leader knows there truly are no excuses, then he or she will make every conceivable effort to prepare. Ownership isn't just about taking responsibility when mistakes happen. The highest form of extreme ownership takes place preemptively before the mistakes occur. So don't just take extreme ownership after the fact. Take preemptive ownership to mitigate problems before they even happen.
taking ownership when being blamed. People often ask me, how do I take ownership when other people are blaming me and saying things are my fault? To me, the answer is blatantly obvious. I tell them that's the whole point. When your team blames you, you say, yes, everything is my fault. I am the leader and I am responsible for everything that happens, the good and the bad. And yes, this is my fault. And here is what I am going to do to fix it. Then I tell them to shift immediately to proactive problem solving and explain their solution. Or if they don't have a solution, say they are trying to figure one out. That answer, simply taking ownership, is obvious, but it can be a hard one to figure out. It is hard to do this, once again, because of our egos. It hurts our egos when we accept blame and take ownership of it. Some people can't get over that hurdle. But it hurts even more when someone is pointing their finger at us, assigning us blame for whatever the problem is. And when someone points their finger at us and blames us for a problem, what do we do? We get defensive. We all get defensive. So the answer to this question is easy. When you are a leader and someone blames you for something going wrong, you accept the blame. You own it. But what happens when you are the subordinate and your boss is blaming you for something that went wrong? Once again, the ego and defensive mechanisms will activate and make you want to deny or shift the blame onto other people. Overcome those impulses and take ownership. But what if it really wasn't my fault? What if the problem really wasn't me? I hear that objection all the time from people. Let's take a look at that argument, once again using the machine gunner as the subject in question. Imagine you are in a four-man fire team. You are a basic rifleman. There is also a fire team leader, a machine gunner, and a grenadier. You patrol next to the machine gunner. During a training exercise, the machine gunner shoots outside his field of fire, endangering some friendly forces. On the completion of the training exercise, your team leader says, why did you let the machine gunner shoot outside his field of fire? Now, from one perspective, this is ridiculous. You are a simple rifleman. You are not the leader. You are not the machine gunner. You are responsible for your own field of fire, not the machine gunner's. The machine gunner is responsible for his field of fire. On top of that, he is the one pulling the trigger. So how can you possibly be held responsible for the machine gunner's actions? So you let your boss know. Hey boss, the machine gunner is responsible for his fields of fire, not me. You should go tighten him up. The fire team leader looks at you disappointedly and walks away. You feel strange that he looked disappointed, but you feel vindicated that you stood up for yourself and placed the blame where it should go, on the machine gunner. This seems like it might have been the right move, but it wasn't. Here's another perspective. When the leader says, why did you let the machine gunner shoot outside his field of fire, you realize that the fire team leader has higher expectations of you than being a simple rifleman. The leader expects you to do more than just handle yourself. He expects you to help other members of the team, to help direct and lead the machine gunner. This is a compliment and a nod of confidence in your leadership skills. So you respond, I'm sorry, boss. While I knew my own field of fire, I should have confirmed that the machine gunner knew his. It would only have taken me a second or two 
and it would have ensured that he understood what was going on. It was my fault, and I won't let it happen again. As soon as you finish that statement, the fire team leader nods with confidence. Perfect. That's what I need. I need you to step up and lead. I can't be everywhere all the time. Thanks for helping out. The fire team leader pats you on the shoulder and walks away. You feel great. You realize your fire team leader has confidence in you and high expectations. And you know that by being a leader, the whole team will do better. This was the right answer. To throw one more perspective into this, what about the fire team leader? Who does he want on his team? The rifleman who evades blame and shirks responsibility? Or the one who takes ownership of mistakes, even those made by someone else in the fire team? The answer is obvious. Any leader wants people on his or her team that step up and take ownership. So be one of those people. Picking up brass. Leaders might be above their subordinates in rank structure, but they are not actually superior to those below them in the chain of command. And this means leaders must respect them. It also means there is no job too small or menial for a leader to do. In the SEAL teams, we shoot a lot of weapons on vast, highly dynamic ranges that cover dozens of square miles of land. When we shoot, the weapons leave behind brass shell casings by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Because brass has value and can be recycled, and because the training ranges must be kept clean, when a SEAL platoon finishes a block of training, it then has to pick up all those brass casings. This is a pretty miserable task and usually takes a couple of days of gutting through high temperatures in the desert heat and crawling around on your knees picking up shell casings. It is a menial task that requires zero skill and no leadership whatsoever. Because of that, it is very easy for a SEAL leader to leave the menial task of picking up brass to his subordinates. There is always administrative work that needs to be completed, meetings that need to be attended, and future operations that need to be planned. But leaving the brass for others to pick up is usually not the right call for a leader. I always picked up brass with my troops. Not only did it display that no job was above me, it was also a good time to interact with the frontline SEALs, bond with the subordinate leaders and troops, and observe how everyone interacts with one another. It also revealed who on the team was slacking. Leaders who chose not to pick up brass missed out on all that. Sure, they may have attended yet another meeting in the vast pool of meetings. They may have finished their administrative work or gotten some additional sleep. But they didn't build relationships with their troops. They didn't see how their troops interacted, and they certainly didn't prove their humility to their team. This is not to say the leader should always be in the trenches. That is not true at all. A leader has to lead. A leader does have to attend meetings, take care of administrative work, plan for the future, and attend to all kinds of pressing tasks. But there are times, especially when a job is particularly taxing on the troops, when it is important to get down in the dirt with the folks on the front line and do work. This is similar to how a leader should treat high-risk operations or anything where there is a significant level of discomfort. 
If a team is being placed into harm's way on a regular basis, the leader must sometimes join the team in facing that risk. If there is a particularly hard job, a good leader should periodically go out and actually do that job. It is the same if there is a job that requires a high level of discomfort or suffering. The leader should occasionally experience that suffering alongside the people who have to endure it every day. Whether it is repairing power lines in the freezing cold, pouring concrete in the extreme heat, patrolling a bad neighborhood as law enforcement, or even just bearing the constant rejection of cold calling for sales. In any of these cases, good leaders will do the hard things their subordinates do every day so they never forget to respect the job itself and the people who do the job, and also so the troops recognize the leader's willingness to shoulder some of the burden so he or she can understand the true challenges of the job. Leading from the rear. One of the most common mantras that leaders hear is, lead from the front. And it makes sense. After all, some critical things happen when leaders lead from the front. When a leader leads from the front, he or she is setting the example, showing exactly what to do and how to do it. This model can be critical during fear-inducing moments. There are many examples in combat where the situation is dire and it is leadership from the front that changes the outcome. Perhaps there is some open terrain to cross. Perhaps there is an enemy sniper waiting to take a shot. Maybe there is a room with enemy fighters behind the door that needs to be entered. Any of these scenarios can cause people to become fearful and freeze. Who wants to risk death? But any of these situations can grow infinitely worse if no action at all is taken. Those types of combat examples prove that someone needs to act. More often than not, that someone is the leader. When no one else has the courage to take action, the leader has to lead from the front. The leader has to charge across the open terrain, maneuver in the enemy sniper's line of fire, or breach the door to engage enemy fighters. If the leader doesn't take action, no one will. The troops will freeze, and the enemy will seize the initiative, get the upper hand, and win. It is not only combat situations where leaders need to lead from the front. In any situation that is stagnated because of fear or apprehension, a leader stepping up and taking action is a solid solution. The same is true of terribly arduous tasks. People tend to shy away from suffering. They will procrastinate and avoid getting started. But when the leader jumps in and starts attacking the job, others will jump in and get started as well. A leader must also lead from the front when it comes to setting a good example, treating people with respect, taking care of one another, and being professional at all times. If the leaders lead in this manner, others will follow. Examples like these prove there are plenty of times when a leader must lead from the front. But there are also times when a leader must lead from the rear, or perhaps from the middle. From a tactical perspective on the battlefield, leading from the front increases risk to the leader. Sometimes it is necessary to take that risk, but if the leader is killed or otherwise incapacitated, that can be catastrophic to the team. A leader must be judicious about when and where to take risk. Beyond the risk, 
if the leader positions himself or herself at the front, he or she can easily become bogged down in the immediate tactical problem. When dealing with direct tactical problems like being in a firefight, the leader won't have much visibility beyond that, and that will cause decision-making to become difficult at best. The same thing happens in the business world. If a leader gets into the weeds in minuscule details of day-to-day operations, then they lose visibility of the broader events unfolding, and the decision-making process falls apart. When I served as a SEAL Assault Force commander, I always tried to avoid being one of the first six to eight people to enter a potentially hostile building during an assault. I did this because the first six to eight people would be clearing rooms, perhaps getting in gunfights, and, at a minimum, detaining potentially resistant prisoners. In short, the first six to eight people would be heavily engaged in dynamic, fluid situations that required their full attention. If those first assaulters got into a firefight and were immersed in trying to stay alive and eliminate the enemy, who would call for supporting assets? If they were overwhelmed by a large number of detainees, who would call for reinforcements? If possible enemy personnel were seen departing the building, who would notify the external security elements that this was happening? In any of those cases, while the assault team was dealing with the immediate tactical problem, someone else had to lead. In those situations, it was on me to lead. My job was not to clear rooms, engage targets, or grapple with detainees. My job was to detach, assess all the dynamics of the situation, and get my men the support they needed. So when I approached a building, if I happened to end up as one of the people toward the front of the assault team, I would step back, high port my weapon, and allow some of the other SEALs to go in front of me. As soon as my SEALs saw me do that, they immediately knew what was happening and would move past me toward the target. The momentum would not be broken. It was the same thing if I happened to be holding security down a hallway or on a corner. My team knew I should not be holding security. Holding security requires 100% focus and the shooter holding security cannot look around to see what else is happening. He has to watch his designated area for threats. My men did not want me holding security, and they did not want me staring down a hallway. They wanted me to organize supporting assets, to monitor reports about enemy activity, and to calculate our next move. They wanted me to lead. I couldn't do any of those things if I was holding security. So when I did have to pick up security, one of my guys would almost instantly tap on my shoulder, present his weapon to the enemy threat, and nod to indicate that he had the area covered now and had taken responsibility. Then I could back off, high port my weapon again, and pay attention to what was going on in the bigger picture. If one of my guys saw me trying to get control of a detainee, or marshalling a prisoner, or clearing a room, or a hallway, he would step in and do it for me. My team wanted me looking up and out, not down and in. During immediate action drills, for land warfare situations, I taught young SEAL leaders this same idea. They shouldn't always be at the front engaging the enemy. Once the initial volley of fire is over and a call has been made, the leader should move out of the direct firefight to a good covered position so an assessment can be made and a call executed. 
but it is not only on the battlefield where a leader has to be cautious about leading too far from the front. Planning is another time it is important to consider where to lead from. Instead of the leader coming up with a plan, the preferred method is to let the team members come up with it. Let it be their idea. When the leader allows the team to come up with a plan, those members have already bought into it. There's no need to convince them of anything. Of course, if the planning process gets bogged down or different members of the team can't agree on a course of action, it might be necessary for the leader to step in and provide guidance or even make a decision on which course of action to use. But it is almost always preferred for the leader to lead from the rear, to allow the troops to take the lead on the plan and to take ownership of it. The best ideas often come from the people on the team who are closest to the problem. Those are the folks on the front line. Don't inhibit them. Instead, allow them the freedom and authority to create and execute new plans and ideas. They have the knowledge. Give them the power. Don't feel the need to always lead from the front. Take a step back and let your team lead. Don't overreact. There are times when people will say and do things that make no sense. There are times when things will not go the way you want. When this happens, good leaders remain level-headed. Don't get agitated. Keep your emotions in check. Take measured account of the situation. Keep your opinions to yourself as you analyze logically what is actually happening. Remember that anything you say at the moment is based on incomplete and likely inaccurate information. Allow for the situation to unfold and for a more solid picture to appear before you speak up. This is not to say that there aren't some times when a quick decision needs to be made. But even in those cases, a pause must be taken to ensure you know what is really happening. Even in a gunfight, after the shooting starts, you have to further assess what is happening. If you are being shot at from the north, you obviously need your team to begin returning fire to the north, but you can't immediately commit your forces to maneuvering on the enemy to the north. You have to estimate the size of the enemy force. If they appear to be small, perhaps you can attack and take them out. But if they are large, you might want to order your forces to break contact and leave the area. Once you have approximated the size of the enemy force, you have to assess the terrain and calculate if it makes sense to maneuver to the north. If there is nothing but open terrain with no cover and concealment, an attack on even a small enemy force might be futile. But if there is some terrain allowing movement toward the enemy, perhaps an attack is the right decision. Finally, you have to decide whether or not this is actually the main force of the enemy. Are these enemy to the north the main thrust of the enemy effort? Or are they just meant to distract you while a larger, more substantial force prepares to crush you from another area? Those are some of the things that must be considered. They must be considered quickly, but they must be considered fully and carefully to ensure a decision is the right decision. In the business world, the same type of assessment needs to be done when anything goes wrong. If you hear an employee talking with a competitor and possibly leaving your ranks, there's no reason to fly off the handle. Instead, remain calm and dig for more information. If you are told that a project is significantly off track, 
Don't start yelling and screaming. Instead, calmly determine what is causing the problem and what support is needed to get the project back on track. There is no reason to overreact. Overreaction is always bad. Not only does it lead to poor decisions, it also makes you look bad as a leader. People don't like it when leaders overreact. It means the leader is not in control and might make irrational, snap decisions. So take a step back, detach from your emotional reaction, find out what is really going on, and then make calm, logical decisions based on the reality of the situation. Don't care. There is another way to keep your reactions under control. It is another form of detachment and it is a very hard form of detachment to master. It is a form of detachment called I don't care. People are familiar with this idea in negotiations. It is the ability to walk away, and it is a powerful weapon. Oh, you don't want to lower your price? That's fine. I don't care. Keep it. When you are a leader, not caring is a powerful tool as well. You want to utilize your plan instead of mine? Cool. I don't care. You want me to do some crappy job for you that others find demeaning? Fine, I don't care. You want me to give someone else the opportunity to lead a project? Awesome, I don't care. I'll give them all the support I can. Yes, this ability to not care goes a long way, but is also a hard ability to acquire. Why? Because it requires being able to subdue and subordinate the most powerful driving force a human being has, their ego. If you drill down on the things you care about, you will find that many of them are rooted in ego. Even the simple examples I just gave above. Being asked to do a crappy, demeaning task. Why does that make us mad? Because of our egos. A good leader in that situation can put their ego aside and simply get the job done, no matter how crappy the job is. The next example is giving someone else the opportunity to lead a project. This will obviously make my job easier as I will no longer have responsibility for the whole project. Then why do people object to letting someone else lead? Because it hurts our egos to give up leadership. And it hurts even more to give up leadership and then turn around and give support to the person who just took your leadership position. But it only hurts your ego. When you dig deeper into what you care about, it is clear many of our feelings are tied to our egos. So we have to set them aside. Your ego drives you to want to win. It pushes you. It won't let you sleep. It doesn't care about anyone else. But if you really want to win... To achieve ultimate, strategic, long-term victory, you must override your ego. You have to learn to not care. Because ego can also be very short-sighted. If you do the demeaning job, you show your humility and your willingness to sacrifice for the team. If you let someone else lead, you build trust and also reveal the confidence you have in your leadership capability. Those building blocks will propel you toward your ultimate goal. And, here is the dichotomy, your ego will be satisfied. That's right. To actually win strategically in the long game, you have to not care. And to not care, you have to set aside your ego. Everyone is the same. Everyone is different. 
Everyone is the same, but everyone is different. The better a leader understands this dichotomy, the better he or she will understand people. The first half of this dichotomy is that everyone is the same. There are typical people in every organization. You will see confident natural leaders, shy loners who want to avoid the spotlight, quiet cerebral thinkers, bold, aggressive individuals, people who want to win, and people who aren't very concerned about winning. It is easy to think about the most common categories of people. They exist in every group, from a SEAL platoon to a corporate boardroom to a Girl Scout troop. These characters are everywhere. People are the same. But the other half of this dichotomy is that every person is different. They have different motivations, different agendas, different idiosyncrasies, and different ideas. As much as you can categorize someone as a leader or a loner, they are all still completely different from other leaders and other loners you may have worked with. These differences are among the things that makes leadership so challenging. As a leader, you have to connect with many different types of individuals. You have to learn to use different styles of communication with different people, but at the same time, relay the same message. You have to interpret what drives an individual and incorporate that into your strategy. You have to understand how much pressure an individual can take and how well they perform under that pressure. You have to do all this while maintaining a consistent message, an equitable distribution of your attention among your troops, and without getting so specific that everyone on the team becomes reliant on spoon-fed communications that are custom-created for their individual needs. This requires a leader to be like a fine woodworker, a craftsman who can shape wood into a useful object with a wide range of materials. He or she has to know not only what tools to use, but also how those tools vary when being used on different types of wood, from a soft piece of pine to a hard slab of oak. Different types of wood require the application of different tools, just as different types of people require different tools of leadership. But it does not end there. Individual pieces of wood have their own unique characteristics. They have knots and splits and twists that must be handled correctly, lest they ruin the final product. Because of this, the woodworker cannot merely understand that different tools are required for different types of wood. He or she must know that various tools must be applied in distinctive ways to overcome the infinite number of one-of-a-kind pieces of wood that exist. So while a piece of wood is a piece of wood, and all wood is the same fundamental type of material, there are different types of wood. And because of nature and circumstance and chance, each piece is completely unique. Every piece is the same, but every piece is different. The same goes for human beings. Every person has some shared characteristics that make them human. But at the same time, Every person is a one-off, unique individual who requires handling specific to their singular nature. What does this mean for the leader? 
is a leader required to create custom applications of communication and interaction for every single individual he or she works with? Of course not. It is also where this attempt at leadership instruction falls short. It would be impossible to document the leadership-specific tools and then the particular application of those tools for every single type of individual in existence. But that is not the purpose of this instruction. The purpose is simply to provide awareness because it is very easy for a leader to mistakenly use all his or her leadership tools universally in all situations. The leader thinks that if a technique worked with one group, it will work with the next. If a tool worked on one person, it will work on the next person. And while success in the past certainly indicates a probability of success in the future, it does not guarantee it. Too often, when leaders apply the same leadership tool in the same way that has worked for them in the past, they cannot figure out why their team or individuals on the team are not performing the way they had envisioned or the way a different team had performed when they had received the same leadership. In those situations, the leader may feel the team is at fault. So then, the leader applies the same tools, but applies those tools even harder. But it doesn't help. In fact, the reaction from the team is pushed even further from the desired outcome. The leader, now even more upset and even more convinced that the team or the individuals are the problem, applies the same tool with maximum pressure. What happens then? Just as when a woodworker applies too much pressure with a tool and the wood splits or burns or warps and the wood is ruined, a team or some of the individuals on the team can be ruined if the leader's approach is inappropriate or is applied with the wrong amount of pressure. The prudent leader does not do this. The prudent leader recognizes that the leadership tool being used is either the wrong tool or he or she is applying it in the wrong way. And then, instead of simply applying it in the same manner, but harder, a good leader will take the pressure off. He or she will assess the situation, look at the team, and study the individuals that make up the team and analyze the dynamics of the situation. Then, the good leader will adjust the manner in which he or she is utilizing the tool or will try a completely different one. What does this actually look like from a leadership perspective? Perhaps team members aren't taking any initiative, so the leader gives them more specific direction so they can begin to make progress. But instead of taking more initiative, they begin to take even less. So the leader gives them even more oversight to ensure they are moving forward. But this continues to make them even less proactive. So the leader applies maximum pressure, explaining exactly what he or she wants done, which leaves the team members with no initiative whatsoever. They are content to sit and wait to be told what to do. A more prudent leader would have taken a step back and seen that his or her detailed instructions had become micromanagement. And instead of inspiring the team members' initiative, it was robbing them of it. Once a leader realizes that, he or she could move in the other direction, providing broad guidance and then granting the team members the authority and autonomy to come up with their own way ahead, thereby giving them the ownership and inspiration to take initiative and make things happen. 
The same thing can happen to individual members of a team. If an individual is not performing to their maximum potential, perhaps the leader decides to pull some responsibility away from that individual so they realize they need to improve their performance. But instead of improving, the individual loses confidence and begins to perform worse. So the leader removes even more responsibility, which causes the same reaction. But on top of that, the worker begins to feel and show some resentment toward the boss. An antagonistic relationship forms, and the situation spirals downward. But if the leader had paid attention and recognized the declining attitude of the individual in question, he could have shifted the approach. Instead of removing responsibility from the individual, the leader could have increased it giving the worker some projects of higher importance that the individual would have to step up to execute. The worker then feels like the boss trusts him and believes he can do a good job, so the individual is motivated to put forth more effort and gains experience and confidence. When those projects are completed, the individual is likely to ask for more and have that request granted. The worker is now on the right path, moving forward and improving as an individual as he helps the team. Of course, this is not always the case. Some individuals buckle under increased pressure. It takes them longer to gain confidence. Other individuals see the loss of responsibility as a challenge. I'll show you, they think, so they work even harder to gain back their responsibility and prove they are worthy of even more. So different people in similar situations who have the same symptoms can require the opposite treatment. That is why different tools and careful application must be administered by the leader. Just as a fine woodworker is not merely a craftsman, but an artist, a leader cannot simply apply leadership tools universally and with indiscretion. A leader must apply them to teams and individuals with tact, diplomacy, prudence, and subtlety. That is the art of leadership. Let nature work. People are the product of both nature and nurture. They are born with some attributes and develop and add to those attributes during their lives and through training and experience. People have different personalities, motivations, temperaments, attitudes, skills, and aptitudes. Some of these traits come from their genetic pool, others from their life experiences. It is unclear which traits come from nature and which come from nurture, or to what level nature and nurture impact the various traits. Luckily, when you are a leader, your goal is not to understand where each person's traits come from, but how to best utilize those traits to best benefit the team and, thereby, the individual. If possible, it is prudent to match the attributes with the job. Don't try to force a person into a role that is not suited to him or her. Don't make a shy introvert a salesperson. Don't put a brash, insensitive person in charge of human resources. Don't put a wildly creative person in a role that demands strict procedures. And don't put a highly meticulous perfectionist into some chaotic duty. Put people in roles that make sense for their personalities. This is not to say people should be pigeonholed strictly into positions that perfectly suit their characters. This is an untenable goal. Jobs will always not be ideal 
for everyone. Everyone will have to work outside their natural comfort zones from time to time, and they should also be placed outside their comfort zones to become better in their areas of weakness. It is the role of the leader to ensure this happens in a measured and controlled way. So while a good leader might not permanently assign a shy introvert to a sales position, the leader should have them make some sales training calls so they become more comfortable talking to people. Over time, the shyness can be overcome, and the person is better equipped to expand their role. Likewise, a leader would not choose to put a brash and offensive person into a human resources role, but it would certainly be beneficial to do role-playing exercises with the brash person so they can learn to be more careful with their speech. The same goes for any personality type. To grow and learn, people must be assigned tasks that bring them outside their domain of competence. While this is good for growth, people's primary duties should reflect what they are naturally suited to do. They will enjoy their work more and do a better job, and this will benefit them and the whole team. Don't fight against nature. Use it. Isolation as a leader. There is no doubt that as a leader, you'll have to be comfortable being alone. After all, you will likely have some level of separation from the troops. If you're not careful, it can be lonely at the top. You'll have a tendency to be alone because you will likely be working more than anyone else, showing up earlier and going home later than the rest of the troops. You will also be alone with your decisions because as the leader, decisions are ultimately yours and yours alone. Sure, you can seek counsel and gain consensus, but when the final decision is made, it is made by the leader alone. That is the burden of command. That being said, while leadership can be isolating, it does not have to be lonely. I was usually not lonely as a leader. As I developed my team and got to know them, I cultivated extremely strong relationships up and down the chain of command. Of course, this must be done with caution. A leader can't come out of the gates looking to befriend every individual on the team. Not every individual has the maturity and sensibility to have a close relationship with their boss. So you have to take it slowly as you build trust and relationships. Eventually, you should end up with a few trusted agents at various levels of your organization. When you have established this, you can keep your fingers on the pulse of the team. Become aware of possible problems that are forthcoming and bounce ideas off others before you launch them. On top of all that, once you have established some close relationships inside the team, you have people to laugh and joke with and to vent to a little bit during stressful times. This will mitigate the feeling of loneliness at the top. Of course, a leader must keep these relationships under control. Relationships do not mean preferential treatment. Relationships do not mean undue influence. And relationships do not mean unfiltered candor and completely revealing one's thoughts. It is a fine line. Since this line is not to be crossed, err on the side of professionalism. But try not to go it alone. Have some close relationships with some of the people on your team and get feedback and input from them. At the same time, it is also important to remember that decisions themselves fall on the leader alone. 
While it is great to bounce ideas off subordinates, develop plans and courses of actions as a team, and build consensus around what the final decision is, the final decision itself still rests with one person and one person only, the leader. This is not only due to the hierarchy of rank structure, but also because there are some things that only the leader can fully understand, even if he or she tries to explain them in great detail. The position of leadership reveals a perspective that is almost impossible for others to appreciate. For that reason, the leader must make the final decision. If the final decision results in failure, it wasn't the team's decision. No, it was the leader's decision. There is no escaping that reality. No matter how many advisors weighed in, no matter how much a leader was swayed by the arguments of their team, the ultimate decision rests solely on the leader and the leader alone. That is all there is to it. Know what is important and what isn't. One of the things that distinguishes a black belt in jiu-jitsu from a white belt is the black belt's understanding of what is important and what isn't. A black belt sees past insignificant movements, ignores trivial actions, and focuses on what actually matters. A good commander on the battlefield does the same thing. The commander can tell when enemy shooting is merely reconnaissance by fire. A good commander understands when enemy movement is just a ploy. A good commander ignores things that will not have an actual impact on the battle. Like the black belt and the battlefield commander, any good leader must be able to do the same thing. Discriminate between what is important and what is not. For a leader in any situation, changes are everywhere, both external and internal. External changes can occur in the environment, the behavior of the enemy, the market, the weather, or in the timing of a scenario. Internal changes can be the emotions of individuals, relationship dynamics, or the morale of the team. Change is the reality of life. Almost everything is in a constant state of flux. And it is a crucial part of a leader's job to figure out which changes are important and which are mere distractions. This is not always easy to do. I see leaders get caught up all the time in things that do not matter. They waste their time and energy on meaningless events or minor problems that will not impact the overall results they are trying to achieve. A black belt in jiu-jitsu is a master of energy conservation. Not one movement is wasted defending against attacks that do not matter. Leaders must learn to do the same thing. To discriminate between things that matter and things that don't, a leader must detach, take a step back, and assess whether or not any detail in a situation matters. When a leader is directly involved in any problem and they immerse themselves in the minutia of a situation, every problem seems important. Every molehill looks like a mountain. So a good leader detaches and elevates above the tactical situation where they can see what really matters. Before they dive into a problem, they ask themselves questions. How will this problem impact the team's strategic goals? Can it cause mission failure? Is it worth my time and effort to engage in? How bad can it get if I leave it alone? 
The answers to each question should make it obvious to a leader if a problem requires their involvement. A good rule to follow is that a leader should err on the side of not getting involved in problems. The goal is always to allow the problems to get solved at the lowest level. When subordinates are solving low-level problems, it allows the leader to focus on more important strategic issues. Of course, there is a dichotomy to this. A leader can elevate themselves too far and fail to recognize the importance of problems. They might think solving a problem is below them or think it will go away if they ignore it. They might think a subordinate can handle a situation when it really requires the involvement of the leader. Any of these mistakes can result in a problem growing out of control, so there has to be balance. While a leader cannot be distracted by things that are unimportant, they must know what is important and when it is time to step down into the tactical situation and get a problem solved before it gets out of hand. This is a challenging thing to do, and it can only be done if a leader properly detaches, assesses, and makes good, solid decisions about what is important and what is not. Section 3. Principles The most important member of the team. You are the most important member of the platoon, I told the point man. You are the one who leads us on patrol. You know where we are and where we are going. You guide us through all the hazards and are the eyes and ears of the platoon when it comes to sensing danger like ambush or improvised explosive devices. It was the truth. We all counted on the point man. I had a similar conversation with the radio man. You are the most important member of the platoon. If we run into a large enemy force and we come under the threat of being overrun, it is the radio on your back and your ability to use it that is going to save us. Your ability to call for fire, to contact aircraft or tanks or other friendly forces to come and save us is what will keep us alive in a desperate situation. It will all depend on you. This was also a true statement. But it was also true for the medic. And I told him just that. You know there's nothing more important than bringing our guys back alive. And if someone gets wounded, it will be you and only you who keeps him alive until we can get him to a surgical facility. You are the most important person in the platoon. The list goes on. I told the machine gunners that they were the most important. Without their putting down suppressive fire during a gunfight, our platoon would not be able to maneuver and survive. The rear security was the most important because, much like the point man, he knew where we were going and what direction to take us if we got in a gunfight. And of course, the enlisted and officer leadership heard the same thing from me. They were the most important individuals on the team because leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. So in the end, I would tell each and every member of my squad, platoon, or task unit that they were the most important person in the platoon. And I was never lying. Because at any moment on a patrol, any one of them could easily become the most important person. And if any one member of the platoon failed the team at a critical moment, it could be catastrophic. This should be the attitude you take with any team that every person's job is absolutely critical. Explain to them what happens if they don't do their jobs well. Explain to them, even the people with the most menial jobs, 
how their little jobs fit into the big picture and the strategic mission. Everyone has the most important job. Let them know that. Span of control. How many people can you lead? While there are some loose rules around how many people should be in your span of control as a leader, the actual answer depends on some variables. The first one that must be considered is what situation you are going into. If you are leading in a dynamic environment where you are directing demanding physical and mental tasks like combat, then the number needs to remain fairly small. That is why military units are based on four to six man fire teams. A leader in a combat scenario can only keep track of and direct four to six people maximum. The noise, confusion, fog of war, distance, and the limitations of communications caused by all those factors prevent even the best leaders from trying to lead groups any larger than four to six people. As a SEAL task unit commander with 35 to 40 individuals, depending on augments attached to us for particular missions, I still only had to directly lead a few people at a time. The task unit consisted of two platoons. The platoon had two squads, and each squad had two fire teams. Decentralized command meant that I never had to try to keep track of all 40 people. In fact, I usually just had to keep track of two or three subordinate leaders. The most obvious example of this was getting a headcount making sure we had all our people as we maneuvered on the battlefield. I didn't have to count everyone. I simply gave the signal for a headcount, and each of the fire team leaders would make sure they had their four guys, which they could do quite easily since they were almost always within visual and audible range of one another. A quick scan or barked roll call would have that answer in a matter of seconds. The fire team leaders would then pass that information up to their squad leaders. Next, the squad leaders, of which there were two per platoon, would tell their platoon commanders they had a full count in their squads. Within seconds of my inquiry, my two platoon commanders would be passing me the signal that we were up, which meant that we had all of our people and could move. If we weren't up, I would also know that in a matter of seconds and could address it. Either way, getting a head count by utilizing subordinate leaders and decentralized command was infinitely better than those task units that tried to use another method, such as having each person count off or assigning a leader to walk around and count every single person. It was also important that each fire team had a succession plan in place. If the leader was wounded, killed, or otherwise incapacitated, the next ranking leader in the fire team needed to step up and take over his responsibilities, which included getting the headcount done. So leadership at every level is paramount for decentralized command to work. If a squad leader covered for incapacitated fire team leaders and tried to keep track of all eight to 10 people in his squad, he wouldn't be able to do that effectively. That is just too many people to control. He needed other members of the fire teams to step up. Once that happened, the problem was solved. In a more administrative environment, some of the basic functions of leadership are easier, meaning it is easier for a leader to locate, communicate, and interact with his or her people so the leader can control more people. But there are limits to that as well. Business leaders also face challenges. Their days are filled with meetings and calls. They also have to travel and day-to-day -day functions of a business demand their time and attention. 
So while a business leader can lead more people than a battlefield leader, there is still a limit. Generally, the limit is around 8 to 10 people. Beyond that, the leader simply doesn't have the time or bandwidth to keep track of events occurring inside the worlds of their subordinate leaders. The last factor in how many people a leader can control is the quality, experience, and level of trust he maintains with his subordinate leaders. The better the subordinate leaders, the less supervision and intervention they require from the boss. If I have a leader beneath me, with whom I've worked for a while, who has a good understanding of the mission and who does well interpreting my commander's intent, he or she will not need much guidance or oversight from me. If I have a whole team of good quality leaders like that, I can supervise more of them because they each necessitate much less attention from me. Conversely, if my subordinate leaders are inexperienced, lacking judgment, and don't fully understand the mission and strategic objectives, then I will have to be much more engaged with them. I will need to monitor their actions much more closely, and the demands on my time will be higher. Obviously, if I am leading a group of subordinates like this, I will not be able to oversee very many since they will require so much more from me. The quality of your subordinate leaders will likely be somewhere in the middle. Some leaders will be experienced, highly trusted, and capable of working with very little guidance. You will have a few leaders at the other end of the spectrum who are not as practiced or proficient and will require constant oversight and supervision. And of course, you will have subordinate leaders who rank somewhere in the middle, who are somewhat experienced and skilled, but not ready to fly on their own. Of course, your goal is to transition every leader on your team into one who needs very little guidance so they can make things happen on their own, which will allow you to look up and out instead of down and in. But that will take time, and it will only be possible if you have a limited number of subordinate leaders to invest your time and effort into. If you end up with too many people under your control, it may be more effective for you to elevate a few of the high-potential troops to be leaders of some smaller teams beneath you. This allows you to quickly bring your span of control into a manageable number. Regardless of how you organize, just be sure to keep your span of control limited so you actually have some control. Taking care of your people with discipline. Discipline is the best way to take care of your people. From day one as a leader in the military, you are told over and over again that you have to take care of your people. But some leaders get very confused about what that means. They think taking care of your people means making sure they are comfortable and happy, coddling them, giving them as much time off as possible, and not pushing them hard. This is wrong. In fact, the opposite is true. In the SEAL teams, if you really care about your people, you won't coddle them at all. You will push them hard. You will train them hard. You will make sure they understand the tactics of war and the weapons and radios they will operate. You will ensure they are in top physical condition and prepared for the mental and emotional stress of combat. You will do everything in your power to prepare them for combat so you can give them the highest probability that they and the rest of the team return from the battlefield. If you really care about your people, you want them to go home to their families. The best way to make that happen is through the hard training that comes from discipline. 
The same thing is true in business. While lives may not be on the line, if you really want to take care of your people, you need to push them. You need to make sure they understand their jobs. You need to drive them toward their goals. If they fail professionally, they fail to achieve their financial goals and cannot take care of their families or provide for them the way they want to. So when you are a leader, the best thing you can do is push them toward their goals. Of course, this drive has to be balanced. You cannot drive your people so hard that you break them. Burnout is a real thing, and it happens on the battlefield and in business. Be cautious about that and don't let it happen. Taking care of your people also means knowing when to back off and when to give them a break. That is covered in the section on handling stress. But don't think your job is to allow your people to take the easy path. The easy path leads to misery. The path of discipline leads to freedom. Imposed discipline. Optimal discipline in a team is not imposed by the leader. It is chosen by the team itself. Optimal discipline is self-discipline. But teams do not always have self-discipline. They may not understand the rewards that come with it. When that happens, it may be necessary for a certain level of discipline to be carefully applied and imposed so the team understands the benefits. Perhaps there is a new, more rigid process a leader is trying to get his or her team members to adopt. But, as is common with change, they are resistant. Let's say the leader does the right thing and explains the why behind the change and clearly states the advantages that will come with its implementation. But despite this information, the team members' attitudes do not change. They refuse to impose discipline on themselves. At this time, with caution, the leader must apply pressure. Listen, we have to give this a try to at least get some feedback. Or, we need to give this a try before the company wastes more money on it. Or, if we don't make changes, we are going to fall behind and is going to cost us all. Any of these statements are relatively soft ways of pushing the team to try the new process. Why not just order them to implement the new method? Why not just force discipline upon them? If you know you are right, why not? Unfortunately, that is the least effective way to implement change. When you give that direct order and impose your will on the team, you are removing your subordinates' input from the equation. They are simply doing what you told them to do with zero control or contribution. When people have no input, they have no ownership. When they have no ownership, they have no personal stake in driving mission success. As soon as they hit resistance, they will stop forward progress. Instead, it is infinitely better to get people to change voluntarily, to embrace the change and take ownership of it so they can drive toward success. Look at the simple example of physical exercise. Sure, you can make people show up and do it, but you will not get maximum effort from them. Maximum effort can only come from the individual, and they will only put forth maximum effort if they actually want to. Otherwise, they will always be holding back and staying in their comfort zones. Progress will be limited. But someone who wants to exercise will put forth real effort because the desire 
comes from them. The best performing athletes in the world reach greatness because of how hard they push themselves, not how hard others push them. This is not to say athletes don't need coaches. Coaches absolutely play a huge role in the success of athletes. And obviously, sometimes coaches need to push players to do an extra workout, to run a play another time, to do the extra rep. Yes, that is imposed discipline, and sometimes coaches must impose it on their athletes. But if the player has no say whatsoever, they will not respond properly. They have lost control over their own fate, and morale will begin to slide. So sometimes when a player wants to take a break or run certain drills or have a day of active rest, the coach should allow it. A leader should do the same thing. The more control a leader can put into the hands of his or her subordinates, the better. Of course, this doesn't always work. And there are times when the team members simply cannot identify the benefits they will receive by carrying out a task or implementing a change. When they fail to make that connection, they will not execute on their own despite all the soft encouragement of the leader. This should be a rare case because after all, if what the leader is pushing for makes sense, it should not be that hard to explain the sensibility of the decision to the team. But if the leader cannot get the team to budge, sometimes the leader simply has to say, we are going to do this. Again, this should be an extremely rare case. I can count on one hand the number of times I was forced to impose my plan on the team while I was in a leadership position in the SEAL teams. Think about it. If what I am trying to do is going to benefit our team in accomplishing our mission, why wouldn't the team be on board? This is what makes the occasion so rare. But there are cases when individuals on the team have agendas that are not aligned with the leaders or the missions. Those are the cases that might require a direct order. Once a direct order is given, use caution. If team members are directed to do something against their will, they may well not want it to succeed they will likely not put forth their maximal effort to achieve mission success, or even worse, they may sabotage the mission just to prove their leader wrong. This is a worst-case scenario, and it is one of the reasons why imposing discipline on the team is never the best option. Of course, sometimes it has to be done. And in the best scenarios, the leader hopes the team accepts the discipline, sees the benefit of it, and eventually applies it voluntarily themselves. Always remember that imposed discipline is an uphill battle. It is not the best way to lead. Instead, whenever possible, explain the why. Make sure the team members understand the benefits to the mission and to themselves, and finally, give them as much ownership as possible so they execute driven not by imposed discipline, but by the will of their own intrinsic discipline. Pride. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins, and yet it can be a powerful force for good. The dichotomy between these opposite ends of the spectrum can be hard to understand and rein in properly. Pride can tear apart individuals and teams, Yet it can also be an aspirational influence that drives successful, positive behavior. The term pride can be interpreted in different ways, 
And even the same exact statement about pride can have different meanings depending on how it is construed. For instance, the phrase, he took a lot of pride in how he looked, could mean that the individual presented himself professionally and confidently and took solid care of his health, fitness, and hygiene. But it could also mean that he spent too much time focused on how he looked, implying that he was constantly in front of the mirror enthralled by his own appearance. The same can be said about a team. On one hand, excessive pride can lead to arrogance. Group members can become so convinced of their own greatness that they no longer feel the need to work hard, practice, rehearse, and try to improve. Their pride means they don't respect the people they are competing against. When pride becomes arrogance, the ego inflates, stagnation ensues, and the downward spiral begins. On the other hand, pride can also be an immensely positive asset for a team to have. Pride can be the guiding, unseen force that keeps team members working hard, giving their best effort, and holding themselves and others on the team to the absolute highest standard. Have some pride in your work is a common admonition to an individual or team whose performance is lackluster. It means you need to actually care about what you are doing and then do your best. When team members have pride, they put in the extra work, care about the details, and accordingly tend to perform at a much higher level than a team or organization without pride. This is plain to see within military units that have a high level of pride. Their exceptional standards are visible in everything they do. The way their soldiers look, the way they execute their missions, and even the way they carry themselves. Unit pride is a term used in the military and, while not perfectly quantifiable, is certainly observed and measured by everyone who has ever worn a uniform. Things like unit patches, songs, and banners are specifically designed to increase unit pride by creating a sense of belonging and an attitude of exceptionalism. Unit pride comes from history. It comes from past performance. The more team members go through together, the closer they will bond and the more pride they will have. The tougher the challenges unit members face, the stronger unit integrity they will build as long as the challenge doesn't break them. Much of the pride in a military unit is derived first from what the unit has been through, the wars it has been in, the historic battles it has fought, the decorations and accolades it has received. When I was deployed to Iraq, it was common for U.S. Army and Marine Corps units to bring historical documents on deployment with them, to hang on the walls of their tactical operations center, their chow halls, or their ready rooms. Unit flags and battle streamers would be ceremoniously positioned in prominent locations in barracks or briefing rooms. It was impressive to see. Sports and business teams do the same thing. Banners of past victories are hung in stadiums and adorn hallways. Trophies are put on display in glass cases. In businesses, positive articles are framed and hung up. Awards are displayed on bookshelves and desktops, and good reviews are posted on walls. When the past is held up and put on display in honor, it becomes the standard for all to pursue. 
Ideally, the goal is to have the team members strive for that high standard individually, to have them hold themselves and one another to that level of excellence. Optimally, a leader doesn't have to constantly police infractions and motivate them to give their best. If there is pride, the team polices itself. The team will not allow substandard performance. Anyone who slacks off is corrected not by the leadership, but by the team itself. That is the power of pride. What, then, of a team that lacks pride? Perhaps it doesn't have a storied history. Perhaps it doesn't have a history of victory to hold high. What then? It is one of the most critical tasks as a leader to instill pride in your team. How do you do that? How can you build the morale of troops and create the strong bonds of pride that result in an attitude where everyone on the team gives more than what is required? The answer is simple. You give them the opportunity to earn it. Pride does not develop simply by telling team members that they are great or by hanging up banners. All the banners and signs and flags mean nothing if they aren't earned. To build pride within a team, you have to put the members in situations that require unity, strength, and perseverance to get through. You have to push them in training to the point where they are truly tested. And in that, they will develop pride in what they have accomplished. If you look at the military, it uses hard training to instill pride in various units. From basic infantry training to airborne school to the special operations selection courses, the hard training not only prepares soldiers for combat, it also instills pride. When I was a task unit commander, we trained harder than the other task units at our SEAL team. We showed up earlier. We went home later. We did extra iterations of shooting and maneuvering. We trained in jiu-jitsu in the early mornings and then pushed hard during team physical training. We were disciplined. At first, I imposed the discipline, and there were some grumblings. Why do we need to do this extra work? And what is the point in training so hard? And we shouldn't have to do this. But over time, the complaints faded. My imposed discipline turned into the team's self-discipline, and that self-discipline ultimately turned into pride. We work harder than anyone else at this team, and no one else comes close to our task unit. And some of the guys even said things like, if you aren't in task unit bruiser, you wish you were, which was said as a joke, but with more than a hint of truth. That was pride. And of course, the harder we trained, the better we performed. Not because we had more talented SEALs than the other task units, but because we worked together more, prepared more, and held one another to a higher standard. The discipline I had imposed on them became internalized. It became self-discipline. Everyone in the task unit did their job and then some. People weren't late. No one forgot gear. People paid attention during briefs. When there was something that needed to be done, someone did it. My guys did all the little things that make a good SEAL task unit, and they did them all because of discipline and pride in task unit bruiser. If you want to build pride, you have to bring pain. Pride comes from shared suffering. 
Sure, pride comes from history and pride comes from winning, but you can't count on that. If you want your team members to have pride, you have to make them earn it through hard work. Of course, you can take this too far. You can work your team members so hard that they break. Instead of forging a team hardened by training and adversity, you can beat your team members so hard that you break their spirits instead of building their pride. You can also build their pride up so much that they become arrogant. Sure, you want team members to think they can do anything, but take that too far and they think they're invincible. They might think they don't have to earn that pride through hard work, and they might slack off. Don't let these things happen. Don't push the team members so hard and give them such harsh challenges that you break them. But don't give them such easy challenges that they completely dominate to the point that they think they don't need to train and prepare anymore. When you are pushing a team hard to develop pride, you have to use caution. If you see the morale of the team fading, or you see frustration start to become the prominent attitude, you need to back off. Let the team get some wins. Contrarily, if the team members are winning so much during training that they start to think they don't need to prepare or they think they can't be beaten, they need to be put in check. They need to get pushed harder, so push them harder. No pride is built on easy wins, but a team has to win to have some pride. Try to find that point and fight to maintain it. Pride is an awesome force as long as it is balanced between humility and confidence. If you let it creep too far in either direction, it will become destructive. It is on you to build, maintain, and channel that force. Pride. Giving orders. When I came home from my first deployment to Iraq, where I served as platoon commander and took over as the commander of Task Unit Bruiser, my experience as a leader in training and combat was more extensive than the rest of the guys in the task unit. As a prior enlisted SEAL leader who had taught the tactics for all the various mission sets that SEALs are responsible for, I had a very solid understanding of how to plan and execute an operation. As part of one of the earliest platoons to deploy to Iraq, I tested and affirmed my knowledge in combat operation after combat operation as we took down target after target all over Iraq. So when it came to planning missions, I had things dialed in. I knew how and where to deploy troops, the best timelines to follow, and how to most efficiently conduct actions at the objective. But as the task unit commander, when it was time for me to give mission orders, I did not dictate to my subordinate leaders what troops to bring and where to put them. I didn't tell them how many vehicles to use or what weapons to carry. I didn't order timelines to follow or routes to and from the target to use or what contingencies to prepare for. I didn't tell my platoons any of those details. If I did, the plan for the mission would not be theirs, but mine. Instead, when giving orders, I would simply tell them what the mission objective was, the goal I wanted the platoons to accomplish. This is what the military refers to as commander's intent. When I did this, it allowed the platoon leadership and the other SEALs in the platoon to come up with the plan themselves. They chose what troops to bring and where to put them. They chose how many vehicles and which weapons to bring. 
They figured out the timeline and the routes and the contingencies they needed to prepare for. And when they did all that, the plan became their plan, not mine, which means they owned it. Now, this doesn't mean you will always agree with your subordinate's plan. I know I would often look at my subordinate's plans and know I had a better way. Sure, that might have been some ego, but it was also based on the fact that I had much more experience than anyone who worked for me. I had simply been in the SEAL teams longer and had more opportunity and experience planning and conducting operations. But even if I had a plan that I felt was slightly better than my subordinates, I wouldn't override them. I would go with it. I would allow them to execute it. If I had a solution I estimated to be a 90% solution and saw that their plan was only an 80% solution, I would still let them execute their plan instead of mine. The commitment they would have when they executed their own plan would easily make up for the 10% loss in efficiency. If my subordinate's plan was only a 70% solution versus my 90% solution, I would still let them execute it but only after I gave them some small course corrections to make it more efficient. If their plan was even worse, let's say a 50 or 60% solution, then I would give them slightly bigger course corrections to get them back on track and bring it to a 70 or 80% solution. Even then, it was still their plan and they would execute it with conviction. Now, if their plan was simply terrible with almost no redeeming qualities, then I would ask some questions until they realized how bad it was. And if a plan was not a good solution to the problem, it wasn't ever very hard for them to see their plan's shortfalls. Even then, instead of me forcing my plan on them, I would have them go back to the drawing board, take the lessons they had just learned from their bad plan, and come up with a new one of their own. Once again, this allowed them to have true buy-in and ownership of it. So when the opportunity is available, let your subordinates come up with a plan. Not only will it result in their taking ownership and buying into it, it will also give you the standoff distance and the altitude you need to see holes in it. By not getting into the weeds, you can stand back and be the tactical genius. All of this is easier said than done, and the biggest obstacle in allowing subordinate leaders to come up with a plan is your ego. Leaders want to be in control. Leaders want the troops to listen to what they say. Leaders often see themselves as the only ones actually capable of coming up with the right plan. All those thoughts and feelings are driven by the ego. Let it go. When your subordinates come up with a plan, even if it isn't as good as the one you have in your head, let your own plan go. Let it go. Be overjoyed that your subordinates have a plan that is at least somewhat workable. Make whatever minor adjustments are required and then let them run with it. They will push hard to make it a success. And with each iteration of planning they conduct and with each correction you give them, they will become better. And soon, their plans will be as good as yours, if not better. When this happens, you can begin to look up and out instead of down and in, which is exactly what a leader should be doing. Yes, men. As a leader, you should not want to be surrounded by yes men, people who agree with everything you say. 
As a subordinate, you should not be a yes man. You should speak up when something doesn't make sense. This concept sometimes worries leaders because essentially what I'm saying here is that subordinates should always be pushing back against their leaders, always asking their leaders why things are being done a certain way, and always offering up information and recommendations from their perspective on the front line. That scares some leaders. Some leaders would rather just have their subordinates do exactly what they are told to do. That is a bad idea. As an example, let's say I am commanding three platoons out on the battlefield, and I am toward the rear of the formation. The lead element, first platoon, suddenly gets fired on by an elevated enemy position with several solid bunkers and multiple machine guns with interlocking fields of fire. First platoon retreats to a small depression safe from the machine gun fire. They report back to me that they have received fire from the enemy, but I am anxious and want to move forward, so I reply to the first platoon commander with an order. Take your platoon and assault and destroy the enemy bunkers. The order is simple enough. Attack. But there is a major problem. Attacking multiple enemy bunkers up a hill in the open when the enemy has several machine guns with interlocking fields of fire is not just a bad idea, it's a horrible one. Every person who assaults that bunker will die. The last thing in the world I want is a subordinate who simply says, Roger that, sir, and leads everyone in his platoon to their deaths. No, I want a subordinate who has the confidence and the trust in me to say, boss, that isn't a good idea. We need to get some heavy artillery on the bunkers, then we can move around to the flank and take them out. If I'm a good boss, I will listen to my subordinate, who is actually closer to the problem and therefore has a better understanding of it, and do what I can to support his suggestion. This tactical example carries through to all kinds of different situations in planning, preparation, and execution. If you want optimal performance, don't just count on your own brain power. Instead, encourage the rest of your team to think and to question you. Don't surround yourself with yes-men. They do nothing to help you or the team. And if it makes you uncomfortable to get pushback or questions from your team, check your ego. It is probably a little inflated. The exception to no bad teams, only bad leaders. In Extreme Ownership, we wrote that there were no bad teams, only bad leaders. We were not the first people to make this claim. Napoleon said there were no bad regiments, only bad colonels. And U.S. Army Colonel David Hackworth said in his book About Face that there were no bad units, only bad officers. Yet there are still people who feel that a bad team is a legitimate excuse for bad performance. That is simply not true. There are no situations and no exceptions where a subordinate is ultimately responsible for the performance of a team. It is always the leader's fault. That being said, there is an exception to the rule that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. The exception is that it is possible to have a good team that delivers outstanding performance despite a bad leader. How does that happen if leadership is the most important thing in the success or failure of a team? 
It happens when there are subordinates in the team who lead regardless of their rank. They are tactful individuals who know how to lead despite not having been given the official authority. These subordinate leaders have found ways to lead without offending the structural leader because the structural leader might not be able to deal with someone below them in the chain of command running things. If the structural leader has a big ego, they likely won't listen to any of their subordinates. For that reason, in a successful team that is being led by the junior people, the structural leader does deserve credit for having the humility to let his or her subordinates run things. Without humility, the structural leader would resist subordinates who try to lead. This would ultimately counter the efforts of those subordinates and the team would fail. Because of this exception to the rule, it means that just because a team is performing well, it does not necessarily mean the leader is the driver of that success. Sure, the leader might have the sense to step back and let other members of the team lead, which is a positive quality, but they aren't the ones actually driving the success. They are not responsible for it. This is important because the next leader up the chain of command above that successful team must understand what is making the teams within his or her team successful. He or she must know the true strength of a team. Why? Because teams and organizations are not stagnant. Things change, tasks shift, missions are altered. And in all those cases, there are times when personnel must be moved, teams must be broken down and reformed with different people, or promotions must be made. If a leader does not understand what is driving the success of a subordinate team, managing these changes can be problematic. A leader might want to strengthen a weak team and therefore move the leader from a strong team to the weak team. But if the leader of the strong team wasn't the driving force of success in the strong team, this move will make little difference for the weak team. However, if a leader can identify that it is actually a subordinate in the strong team who is driving the success, then promoting that subordinate into a leadership position in the weak team can turn things around. And there is a likelihood that because the strong team has sustained performance and intimate knowledge of how to be successful, they will continue to perform well despite losing their star player. So while it is important to recognize that leadership is the most important factor in the success of any team or organization, it is also important to remember that leadership may not always come from the structural leader sitting on top of the wire diagram. While a bad team is without question the result of a bad leader, a good team is not necessarily the result of a good leader. You must know your people well enough to recognize and capitalize on that fact.